Drink, 85 cents. You pay or go. What's a phi? I don't understand a phi. There's a V in the word. It's five. Uh, you don't got these in China? Not Chinese. I'm Korean. Uh, whatever. You come to my country, you take my money, you don't even have the grace to learn how to speak my language. Uh, you're Korean. Uh, you have any idea how much money my country has given your country? How much? I don't know. There's, there's got to be a lot you can bet on that. It's... You go now. No trouble. <laughs> I stay. What do you think of that? The poet Victoria Chang traces her family history through letter writing in her new book, Dear Memory. When she was cleaning out a storage facility, she discovered much of her parents' lives packed in boxes. I found all these papers and letters and birth certificates, and, and then I had a flood of questions sort of came through my body, uh, but I had no one to ask them to. So I decided to write a letter to my mother, and that was sort of the first letter that I had written for the book, and with no intention of sort of writing more, but then, you know, writers do that. We just keep going. And so in Dear Memory, she writes letters to her parents, her grandparents, her daughters, her teachers, interspersed with photographs and documents going back to her parents' journey from China to Taiwan to the U.S. She also writes about dealing with racist microaggressions. And a warning to our listeners, what you're about to hear includes ethnic slurs and offensive language. At one point in the book, I'm going to quote here, you write, dragging a not-yet-ready memory thought or feeling toward language too early feels something like the dog. I can move it, but it will be difficult. Did you come up against that in writing these poems? Of course. I mean, I think the present is kind of a pointed tip and how voracious memory is to grab that present. And I think that dragging a memory up is hard. I mean, memory just sort of arrives when we least expect it, and then it changes and morphs. It's such an interesting thing. Shame shows up a lot in this book, in one poem in particular. This is titled A Letter to Your Daughter. It's on page 118. I wonder if you wouldn't mind reading a section of that. Dear daughter, what I didn't tell you is that I sat in the front row of the reading ready to smile and to give a good introduction like a good host. What I didn't tell you is that when the reader had a white character call an Asian-American one a squinty-eyed, feckless I remembered all the times when others took their fingers and pulled their eyes wide into a horizon. All the times people yelled, chink, to my family or me. The times someone wrote chink on our driveway in chalk. What I didn't tell you is that the reader intimidated me with his confidence, that my mother never taught me how to speak to white people, to loud white people, shake the hands of confident white people, speak in front of white people at a lectern with a white piece of paper with black type on it. It's a really powerful passage. Can you explain the context of it? Sure. I mean, it happens all the time. And yeah. um this was just one instance where I was at a writer's conference and, you know, a white man went up to the podium and was reading a story and I was in the front row and I was the host. And so it was particularly challenging. I didn't understand why that that even was in the story. So it was hard because I had to go up there and thank the reader and clap for him. And right before that event too, um, another host, and she was a white woman, had come up to me and lectured me for not 
um, introducing myself to that, you know, particular guest who was a friend of hers. And that was really hard because I, you know, apologized and said, oh, I'm really sorry. I've been really busy. And so it kind of felt, you know, a doubly moment of really asking myself, you know, when do I, when do I speak up? When do I stay silent? And most of the time I stay silent, you know. <laughs> But as we heard in that same passage, you quickly pivot to your parents and mm-hmm. and it sounds like resentment for not preparing you better to live in a racist world. Well, I mean, they experience these things all the time and I witnessed them. That's the hard thing as a child and you don't know how to put words or thoughts to that is that as a child of of people who are, who may be immigrants um, or even people who are just different in some way, you don't realize how much you witness your parents who you've sort of elevated in many ways um, as sort of godlike figures, but then to see them being publicly shamed in some ways many times in your life is actually a really destabilizing feeling. And then to see most of the silence and how they respond, you know, just ignore it, just move on, because what's the alternative? So now looking back on it, I think it's partly cultural, I imagine, Um, maybe some language based things, but also probably as now I'm a parent, safety for your own children. It's like, when do you speak up? When do you not speak up? When do you let it go? So this was a letter to your daughters. What, What did you want them to take away from this? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough because um, I have, you know, biracial children who, you know, look very Asian. And so I'm always constantly thinking about what I could do as a parent to help prepare them for the different things that are going to happen to them. And that's from, you know, misogyny or sexism. And so we talk about those kinds of things. And then the racism that they'll experience or have already. uh, And how do we how do we navigate through that? Well, maybe not utilizing silence as our main communication tool is something that I've had to really think hard about because I don't necessarily have those skill sets innately because of the way that I was raised. What have you taught them about silence? I think a lot, hopefully. You know, I I think that I try and be really open and name things, right? So I always talk to them about, look, if, if we can't really address anything. We can't really feel better, maybe even, and um, learn from the experience if we don't name it, if we don't talk about it. And so they'd probably say that all the time. Like, you know, let's talk. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's no shame in anything, really. So I find myself maybe reacting to the way that I was raised in changing how I was raised and then raising my own children differently because I think it's mentally healthier to communicate. Have you made peace with the parts of your parents' histories that you won't ever know now? Yes, of course. We we don't have a choice. And so um, I think making peace is, is what we do on a daily basis. Um, but I've also, in writing about these things, I've made peace. I, I think I've made peace with my entire self, my entire upbringing, their history, I used to be ashamed of everything and uh, not like anything and think I was this or there's something wrong with that. Or, And now I realize, oh, it's all a gift. Everything, all of our backgrounds, it's all a gift in some ways. And the more we sort of lean into that, the richer our lives will be. The book is called Dear Memory, Letters on Writing, Silence and Grief. Victoria Chang, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 
Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. There's a new poll out by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. The poll finds that one in four Asian Americans feared in the past few months that their household would be attacked or threatened because of their race or ethnicity. Meanwhile, nearly a quarter of Native American and black households said they were also worried. And Piers Leila Fadel has this report. This year in the Bay Area in Northern California, there's been an uptick in violence against Asian Americans. A 64-year-old grandma assaulted and robbed a 52-year-old Asian-American woman shot in the head with a flare gun. And for Lisa Liu, it's all felt... That's, like, too close to home. Honestly, like, during the the height of the pandemic, I didn't really feel safe for me to go outside. And I I was actually pregnant for most of the pandemic. (laughs) So that was especially scary, like, the thought of me going anywhere and being attacked and, you know, anything happening to my baby. The attacks in her area are reflective of the nation, Last year, the FBI recorded the highest number of hate crimes in over a decade. For Asian Americans, the attacks came with the pandemic and the rhetoric from the Trump administration. Again, Lisa Liu. Trump calling it the China virus, that's when I felt like life changed. And honestly, I I don't want to venture out to any areas that are not diverse. And even in San Francisco and Oakland, I wouldn't walk anywhere alone. Mary Finling is the assistant director of the Harvard Opinion Research Program, which conducted the poll. What's different about our poll is that we asked about your personal fears, and we were shocked that one in four Asian Americans and around one in five Black and Native Americans say that in the past few months they've feared that someone might threaten or physically attack their household because of their race or ethnicity. Based on the data, she says, for white people, crime may seem rare or random. But if you're not white, what we found is it's not random or rare at all. And this is really capturing people's everyday lived experiences. And just one in four is a lot of people who are looking over their shoulders in fear. Manju Kulkarn is the co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. She says there are the high-profile incidents, like the horrific killings of Asian-American women in Atlanta this spring. But there are also the everyday occurrences that many Asian-Americans are dealing with that are scary. They're refuse service at a grocery store or at a coffee shop where, you know, they're worried about even just being verbally harassed. Asian Americans have been depicted as the perpetual foreigner across centuries, she says, treated as the other and then scapegoated. That's happening with the coronavirus. Now, for Lisa Liu, who we met earlier, she's the new mom who feared leaving her house because she's Asian American. Before last year, she dealt with discrimination. But she didn't fear for her physical safety like she does now. For Victoria, though, she's 58, a black woman. She says she's had that feeling as long as she can remember because she's been targeted before. Because of my race and also even more especially because of my gender, that I'm already a target as being seen weak. And then the color of your skin that you will not possibly report it. You will possibly not be believed. 
She's only using her first name for privacy. She's a survivor of sexual assault. And for Chris in North Dakota, he's Native American. He also worries about threats or attacks. He spends most of his time on the reservation where he works and takes care of his brother. He only wants to use his first name, worried about repercussions. He says when he's off the reservation, he's been feeling growing anger from Trump supporters. Most people are really friendly here, but there are some people that uh, brazenly discuss not wearing masks in public and discuss immigrants and discuss Native Americans to each other while they're in the store around. Offensive things like Native Americans are lazy or there are too many black immigrants in town. So he worries and he keeps to himself. Leila Falden, NPR News. Say, say brother, uh, can I get some of that water, man? Just a little bit, you know, maybe like a drop or two. You got all the water in the world, brother. Just, just let me get a little bit, please. That's, that's all I can get. I mean, I see, I see you over there shining with all that water, man. I just, I just need a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard out here. Residents in Benton Harbor, Michigan, a predominantly black city in the southwestern corner of the state, have been advised to use only bottled water for things like cooking and bathing due to lead contamination. The warning comes just a few years after the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, was discovered. And as John Yang reports, Benton Harbor has been detecting elevated levels of lead in its water supply for years. Judy, today Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed an executive directive pledging all available state resources to address this issue as quickly as possible. The Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist made the announcement in Benton Harbor. Every person in the state of Michigan deserves access to clean and safe drinking water, and every community deserves lead-free pipes. So we are committed to doing everything that we can to ensure that every parent in Benton Harbor can give their child a glass of water with confidence. Gilker said the state would replace all the city's lead pipes within 18 months, and until that's done, the state will deliver 20 truckloads of bottled water every week. According to state health data, high levels of lead were first detected in the uh, city's drinking water in 2018, and every year since, the level of lead has only gone up. The Reverend Edward Pickney is head of the Benton Harbor Community Water Council, a local environmental justice group. Reverend Pickney, thanks so much for joining us. You have been calling for this emergency directive uh, for a while now, and for for a while now, you have been on your own organizing water delivery, organizing filters uh, delivered to homes. How satisfied are you with what the state, uh, what the lieutenant governor said today? Well, you know, I'm I'm happy to hear that they have started to to move forward. Uh, I'm I'm happy to, to to make sure that that they're going to do what they said they're going to do. But one of the things they to me they fell a little short. Uh, one of the, one of the most important thing is the language. The governor needs to say that the water is unsafe to drink, unsafe to brush your teeth, unsafe to cook with unsafe to bathe with, unsafe to provide baby formula. She used the word uh, abundantly caution. That is not the language we need. I appreciate what she's saying. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate the, the bottle of water and everything, but the language is important. We have to let the people know that it's unsafe to use this water. What do you hear from, from people in the community 
when you move around? What are, are they anxious? Are they worried? Are they concerned? What are you hearing? Well, they're very concerned about about the mayor not mentioning that the water was contaminated with lead. For three years, they concealed this information. They should have told the people that the water was contaminated, but they failed to do so. And that have led the community not to trust not only the mayor, but also the governor. She said she's going to do these things, but we want to see some action, some real action. The governor pledged some money today. Is the state spending enough on this problem? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, we need at least 30, 35 to $40 million to complete this mission. Uh, I, I, I think that she should consider, if she's going to finish in 18 months, she needs to find more money to complete this mission. Uh, the transformation of the pipes needs to be done now, and she needs to figure out how she's going to pay for it. And, uh, and don't allow the citizens of Benton Harbor to have to pay for it. That's the way it should be done. And 18 months is a very ambitious target. This is They're still uh, trying to finish up the work in Flint. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and uh, But remember, in, in Newark, New Jersey, they completed 20,000 pipelines, you know, and they did that in, in 18 months. So we only got 6,000. And I think that if they're being aggressive, they can complete it in maybe 12 to 18 months. This is not a new issue in Michigan. Uh, Flint uh, has had this, this issue. Both Flint and Benton Harbor, uh, the populations are majority black. Uh, both you have a high proportion of people living in poverty. Do you think that's a coincidence? No. What you just said is a fact. And let me say this. If there was a white person with a baby talking about lead in the water, they would call the Pentagon, they would call FEMA, they would call everybody out of the Army, everything, to make sure they uh, get rid of all the lead in the water. But being a black community, they have different thoughts about that. Because why would it take three years for the governor to even answer, you see? And given the fact that this has been going on on the other side of the state, your, your Benton Harbor is on mm -hmm. the, the western edge of the state on Lake Michigan. Given that this has been going on in Flint on the eastern side of the state for a number of years, uh, do you think that the state officials should have been a little more aggressive about this, reacted a little faster? Absolutely. It's, see, there's no excuse for this. You know, we applaud her for what she's doing now. But she should have did this three years ago. You know, we don't know how many children this has affected. Lead is a, is a slow killer. What it does, it destroys the body. Kidney disease, liver disease, brain disease, heart failure, all these things, lead is contribute to that. So we don't know how much damage has been done already. We might even lose a whole generation because of this lead and what it does to the brain. So I'm very, very concerned. And I, I, I won't say it's too late, but better late than never. But she should have done it three years ago. Reverend Edward Pinckney of the Benton Harbor Community Water Council. Thank you very much, sir. And thank you. Frank, how much do you weigh? Excuse me? About how much do you weigh? Anything to keep you talking, you piece of... I don't know, about 190, 195? <laughs> 215 if you're a day. You're totally the wrong weight for your height. I mean... No offense, Frank, but you're built like a fire plug. 
Yeah, and I got stubby little legs are gonna kick you right in the ass. You going somewhere with this model? <laughs> Just that it can't be healthy. And you look like maybe you're a smoker. You probably take a little drink now and then. Eat greasy fried food, sausage, bacon, eggs over easy. Frank. Onion rings that soak those dark stains through the cardboard. And I'm guessing you shake on that salt like a maraca. Even during this pandemic, the number one cause of death in the U.S. is heart disease. And one contributor is just too much sodium in the food that we eat. The Food and Drug Administration announced a set of targets today aimed at reducing salt consumption, and the agency is calling on food companies to lead the way. And Pierre's Allison Aubrey joins us now with more. Hey, Allison. Hey, Elsa, good to be here. Good to have you. Okay, I just want to say I love salt. So how are they going to get me to eat less salt? Tell me. Well, the, the FDA is asking food manufacturers to reduce the amount of sodium in processed and prepared foods so that Americans are consuming about 12% less over the next two and a half years. Now, this might sound trivial, Elsa, but the agency says small reductions can lead to significant benefits. I spoke to acting FDA commissioner Janet Woodcock. Too much sodium is making people sick. It's leading to hypertension, and that causes both heart disease, strokes, and even kidney damage, and it's preventable. Now, Woodcock says it's hard for people to cut sodium consumption on their own. As you yes. say, you love it. That's because <laughs> more than 70% of the sodium in our diets comes from the processed and prepared foods that we buy. So the agency is asking the food industry to take action. The FDA released a set of voluntary targets, nudging food companies to cut back gradually. Voluntary targets. Okay, is there any evidence that this is going to work if it's voluntary? Yeah, well, Dr. Woodcock points to similar voluntary approaches around the globe that have been successful. For instance, in the UK, a sodium reduction initiative that began back in the early 2000s led to about a 15% reduction in the average salt intake. Hmm. Over time, this corresponded with a reduction in average blood pressure across the population. Hmm. Most recently, there was a study out of China published in the New England Journal of Medicine that got some attention. I spoke to Dr. Donald Lloyd-Jones. He's president of the American American Heart Association about how they swapped table salt for a healthier alternative. They actually substituted potassium chloride for sodium chloride in a number of villages across China, and they saw significant reductions in heart attacks and strokes as well. So the data are there. This is solid science. And again, if we can remove sodium from the processed foods in our food supply, consumers won't even notice, but they'll reap the health benefits. Now, his organization estimates that if Americans reduced sodium intake down to the recommended daily level, it would prevent an estimated 450,000 cases of heart disease and save about $40 billion in health care costs over 20 wow. years. Wow. Okay, that's huge. I could be convinced. What does the <laughs> food industry say about all this? Well, the American Frozen Food Institute says food companies are already on it, offering more reduced sodium, lightly salted, and no-salt options. The group says it will continue to work with the FDA on sodium reduction. Meanwhile, health advocates say these new targets are a good starting point. But Dr. Dariush Mozafarian, he's dean of the nutrition school at Tufts University, he says deeper cuts are needed. He points out that Americans consume on average about 50% more than the daily recommended intake. The FDA really has to act, and very soon, for the long-term goals to reduce sodium you know, down to where it's safe for, for the American public. But he says today's action, Elsa, is a step in the right direction. And so it is. That is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison.
He really loved me. He was so fat. <laughs> you saw how fat he was. I don't care what I brought in this house. He just eat it up. I don't care what it was I brought in here. I bring some Popeye's chicken. That boy ate the whole thing. Before I even get a chance to get him a bite of the chicken, he just eat it up. He would eat his little ass off. You ain't ever seen nobody eat like he would eat candy, gumballs. He made me take him over, over up there to the Super K Mart, yeah. and he put them quarters in that gumball. Yeah. He had to wait till he get the red gumball. He, had to get, he always had to get the red gumball. You sound like a character, I guess. Get that red gumball, and he just eat all that red gumball. solutions would you recommend? Um, because the pandemic's not over yet <laughs> for these, you know, rising rates of obesity in kids in this area. You're right. It's, it's not done yet. And uh, little by little transitioning, but um, things that can be solutions and maybe how parents and caregivers uh, can help to improve the situation for their children is um, we do see, number one, that uh, there is an increase again in uh, movement. And so even if it is, for example, uh, walking to the bus again or walking home from school again um, and being able to walk up and down stairs or from class to class. So getting back into the school in person is a win already. The other thing is actually uh, getting back to movement after school and on weekends. 
get back into a good schedule, a good study schedule combined with a good activity schedule and then a good sleeping schedule. What is the long-time consequence if we don't fix this problem now when we think about one in six children right now um, who are obese? If we're not able to tackle the childhood obesity epidemic effectively, the danger is that the children will continue to go in a direction that will lead them towards chronic diseases as they reach adulthood. Those chronic diseases include type 2 diabetes, heart disease like high blood pressure and uh, heart attacks, strokes, and also uh, liver disease. One of the first steps that parents can do is to reach out to their child's primary care provider. It's a good first step to talk about how to get back into the swing of things, how to get back on board with being healthier. It can even be as simple as talking about some of the first goals that can be made for healthier eating or for movement. And then the second thing would be is that if your community has a multidisciplinary team in um, childhood obesity specialists like dietitians, psychologists, obesity medicine specialists, and exercise specialists, that would be a great advantage to be able to refer into one of these programs. Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. For anyone who thinks they've heard too much about climate change, listen to this. A just-released study shows that human-induced climate change affects 85% of the world's population. Let that sink in. 85% of everyone on planet Earth is touched by climate change. So we've established the stakes. Now, let's have an environmental justice conversation that's really grabbed Capitol Hill's attention. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, who's co-chair of the Black Maternal Health Caucus, has sponsored a bill that's working its way through Congress. It's called the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act of 2021. And many Illinois legislators have co-sponsored the bill. Years of research reveals that climate change and environmental racism have harmed the health of black pregnant women at unacceptable levels. Karen Weigert, who's our sustainability contributor, she's here. She's executive vice president of Slipstream, which is a clean energy innovation nonprofit. She is the former chief sustainability officer for the city of Chicago. And it's always great to have you back. Hi, Karen. Hey, great to join you. Karen brought with her a special guest, Dr. Rupa Basu. Her team's research not only helped power the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act, but also legislation that was recently passed in California. Uh, the doctor is chief of the Air and Climate Epidemiology Section at the California EPA's Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. Dr. Basu, welcome to Reset. Hi, thank you. Thank you for including me in this important discussion today. I'll start with you, Karen. Tell us what is critical about the timing of this news. Well, the timing is critical for the legislation that you're talking about here, which is essentially a national response, but it's also critical in a global context. At the end of this month, the countries of the world are going to get together at the UN Climate Talks. This is an event that was postponed because of the pandemic. This is when countries should assert their higher level of ambition to reduce the carbon emissions that are driving climate change. And we'll have to see where they come out over the next few weeks because the projections now are that the climate is continuing to deteriorate. But what's also interesting about the timing right now is that yesterday a global letter was released from healthcare organizations and healthcare workers that says the climate crisis is the single biggest health threat facing humanity. And when you think about 450 healthcare organizations representing 45 million workers, 
saying that right now, while we're still in the midst of the pandemic, it's profound. Yeah, the single biggest health threat. There's a lot of people that I just don't think realize that. How do these themes play out in the cities, Karen? Well, one backdrop for cities is always the question of emissions. And residents of cities in the U.S. actually use less carbon per capita than people who don't live in cities. So it's always important to start with the, what's driving this. But then you look at what plays out. And what's interesting, actually, is in this letter from healthcare workers and healthcare organizations, they highlight multiple impacts of this changing climate, from disrupted food systems to air pollution, but also to those disasters that catch the news more regularly, wildfires, hurricanes, and heat waves. And in Chicago, we are far too familiar with the heat waves challenge. So we're looking at a situation where cities often experience what's called urban heat island, where warm air is retained in the city. It's released at night, mm-hmm. so it's warmer in the city. And then certain parts of the city are hotter still. So the urban heat island is an explicit way where cities face different challenges from climate. Dr. Basu, let's bring you in here. Why does this issue matter to you? I'll start with a couple of personal stories because this is a real personal issue. And I really like how uh, we tied in the global effects of climate change because it is a global problem. I grew up in California, but I visited my extended family every few years in India. And I noticed that the air pollution and heat in the larger cities especially were often unbearable. Mm -hmm. And I even developed asthma. And I don't generally have any respiratory issues. And I connected those symptoms with the high levels of air pollution and extreme heat, or uh, maybe even a combination of those two. Mm -hmm. And I haven't done any research on this topic in India specifically, but whenever I'm conducting our studies in California or even throughout the U.S., it's really important to consider vulnerable populations and think of the public health implications of our research to other populations globally. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about your professional background then. Sure. I'm an environmental epidemiologist. I received my Ph.D. degree in epidemiology from the Johns Hopkins University uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health. And it wasn't until actually doing my dissertation project that I was able to actually study heat. At the time, it was a couple of decades ago, but we really thought that the elderly were the high-risk population. We didn't really consider other high-risk populations that we know about now, such as infants, young children, pregnant women, um, people with other underlying health conditions, such as cardiovascular, respiratory, um, liver and kidney disease, diabetes, and even mental health. So even though I didn't look at pregnant women specifically yet, we did some studies focusing on the elderly in the U.S., and that really made us think about other vulnerable populations. All right, so let's dig into some of that then, what you learned about specific impacts on pregnancy and specifically about black maternal health. How did you get the idea to conduct this particular research? Was any of that personal? Again, that's another personal story. As I said, I've been studying uh, the thermoregulatory process in the elderly. And when I was pregnant with uh, both of my kids, I actually felt a little bit warmer than usual, even in air-conditioned environments. I felt like I couldn't really control my body temperature. And it kind of like clicked for me that this is what I've been writing about, this you know, inability to control body temperature. And I thought, well, we have the data in California. We have birth certificate data. We have heat and air pollution data. Why don't I just look at this question? The first study wasn't published until 2010. At that time, that was a first large-scale study to look at heat and pregnancy outcomes. And uh, we really found that all women, all pregnant women were at high risk. But what was 
quite alarming was the disparity by maternal race and ethnic group. So while we found all women, like I said, to be at high risk, yeah. the risk for black mothers was almost twice as great. I find this truly fascinating, Doctor. As a reporter, I covered issues related to black maternal health for quite some time when I was in Washington, but never had I connected it to climate change. Why isn't this being talked about more? Well, my hope is that it will be talked about more with um, you know, some media coverage and also more research in the area and also getting clinicians um, involved and other healthcare practitioners, um, communities, and pregnant women themselves. We're all seeing the effects of climate change regardless of where we live, whether it's heat or wildfires or drought or maybe all of them, um, hurricanes. So I think with all of these aspects of climate change increasing and increasing quite rapidly, we are going to be talking about these issues more. How do you understand the big impacts of heat on specific populations? Well, what we do is we kind of look at the entire population. So if we're conducting a study in California, we'll look at the general population. But it's really, really important to look at the most vulnerable population because if we don't protect the most vulnerable, then slowly it trickles down. So if we're not protecting uh, pregnant women or especially black mothers, we're all going to be impacted in some way or another. And as we mentioned at the top, new legislation was passed in California around this issue. You try to stay out of policy discussions, but can you discuss more of that data that you, you found in California? Sure. So most of our studies actually focus on California just because um, we're part of the California EPA. And I will say that our studies, I think, were instrumental in building this legislation, not just for California, but I think also for the U.S. What we're hoping to see with our studies is, of course, more research is always needed. But instead of doing so much research all the time, we're hoping that others take this information and make it useful for clinical practice, for policies, even for advocacy. So, you know, when we see a direct connection like this, it makes us feel like our research is actually being heard and it's, you know, worthwhile doing. Karen, uh, let's bring you back into the conversation. Let's dig deeper into to the data here. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd love to just pull Dr. Basu in to dig a little bit into the length of health outcomes to race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic conditions. What else did you discover? Well, it is true that race ethnicity in the U.S. is connected to socioeconomic status. And uh, while we look at some factors uh, from the U.S. Census that kind of highlight socioeconomic status conditions, we see that association, whether it's poverty, uh, percent white in the household, family income. But we actually see a disparity even among those with the same socioeconomic status by race and ethnicity. So what I mean by that is that it's not really all socioeconomic status that is explaining this difference. There's actually something that is happening by race, ethnicity, maternal race, ethnicity. And what we believe it's even with the same access to healthcare, there's some differential treatment in healthcare, and there's also environmental racism. You know, if you look across the board in all American cities, you're seeing that there's higher levels of fossil fuel emissions, higher levels of traffic, being closer to you know, other uh, contaminants, all that are more prominent in black and brown communities. So it's not surprising that we're seeing these adverse birth outcomes more uh, directly connected to race, ethnicity, but it's not because of socioeconomic status only. 
So, Doctor, how do both systemic and environmental racism factor in? I want, to, I want us to be clear here. How do they factor into these historic negative health outcomes that we know that black women have had to endure? Right. Well, if you're looking at just these health outcomes without environmental exposures, so the health outcomes that I'm talking about here are preterm delivery, low birth weight, uh, stillbirth. Those are some of the adverse birth outcomes that we have considered in our studies. We know that there's already a disparity before we even look at the environmental exposures themselves. Mm -hmm. So among black mothers, there's a higher risk for even infant mortality, low birth weight, preterm delivery, and stillbirth. And of course, these have some short-term as well as long-term implications um, for childhood development, uh, maternal stress, and some neurological issues. What are some of the prescriptions, so to speak, or the things that can make it better for pregnant women, particularly pregnant African-American women? Well, I think health education is a huge factor for uh, clinicians, for pregnant women. You know, if you look for symptoms, a lot of this heat exposure is caused by dehydration. So I think a lot of times people look at the symptoms of dehydration, such as vomiting, dizziness, um, you know, all these other factors, but they don't often connected to the heat, uh, the heat exposure, or maybe even just core body temperature being elevated. So as we get better with health education and really make this connection and really look for these symptoms of dehydration, which sounds so simple, I think that we could prevent a lot of these adverse birth outcomes. You've paid attention, doctor, to um, black maternal health, really, uh, around the country. What have you observed here in Chicago specifically? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so Chicago is actually, just like other uh, U.S. cities, are is a, almost the perfect place to conduct these types of studies. Chicago, I think, really caught our attention back in 1995. There was this pretty large heat wave that was attributed to over 700 deaths. And we know that's uh, underestimate just because heat-related deaths as well as heat waves, there's really no systematic definition in, mm -hmm. the, in the U.S., but because of that, Chicago's really caught the attention of scientists and other groups to create a heat health response plan. And so because of that, they're one of the first cities to create that. And it's been proven to be pretty effective. But when we're talking about black maternal health, that response plan was written quite some time ago. And doesn't really incorporate pregnant women as a high-risk population group. And actually, many of the heat alerts also don't include pregnant women. So that's something that we could learn from the research and talk about the importance, particularly in large U.S. cities such as Chicago. Any idea why they weren't included? Yeah, I think it's because, you know, we've had a lot more research probably in the last 10 years. This is a pretty new field in terms of looking at heat and adverse birth outcomes, like I said, that um, study that I published, uh, our group published in uh, 2010 was mm -hmm. the first one. And just last year, I was a co-author of this larger study with 32 million births across the U.S. to really look at the review and the consistent evidence. And I think when we're seeing this consistency across the board in different populations, um, different demographics, but still seeing that disparity regardless of location, it's really important to now say, oh, yeah, we can also include pregnant women. It's not just elderly. Um, I, sometimes I'll see infants. I'll see young children included. But pregnant women mm -hmm. uh, are often, just because the research is a, a little newer, I think, not included. Now to a story about land theft and a family's fight to get it back. In 1924, the city of Manhattan Beach, California, seized a beachfront property. 
The land belonged to an African-American couple named Charles and Willa Bruce, the founders of a once flourishing seaside resort called Bruce's Beach Lodge. The white residents of Manhattan Beach wanted their black neighbors gone, and the city complied. Charles and Willa Bruce lost their resort and their fortune. It's an injustice that dates back nearly a century, and for years the land was owned by the county of Los Angeles until last week. Today we're making history. And so I'm, I'm proud to be here, not just for the descendants of the Bruce family, but for all of those families torn asunder because of racism. California Governor Gavin Newsom spoke at a press conference at Bruce's Beach. He was holding the bill that would give the land back to the Bruce family. So with that, let's sign this bill and turn this property over. Today, Bruce's Beach consists of a lifeguard training center and a park with panoramic views of the Pacific. Well, we're looking over the horizon at a beautiful, beautiful uh, ocean. It's blue and serene. It's quiet. It's just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous view. Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd is a cousin of the direct descendant of Charles and Willa Bruce. He's also a clan chief of the Pocasset Wampanoag tribe of the Poconoket Nation. He's traced his family's painful history on this land. The resort that was here a long time ago, what, kind, what, what did it offer uh, black people in the, in the L.A. area back well, then? Well, there weren't many areas where black people could get into the water along the entire coast of California at that time. And this place uh, offered them a, uh, a dance hall, a place where they could rent bathing suits, and there was a restaurant here. So it, it was a full-service facility. It was a place where people could come and have social functions. Uh, you had the, uh, the in black entertainers, the actors and actresses and, and uh, uh, jazz artists at that time. Uh, you had the politicians, the black politicians, and, and, and as well as the business owners and socialites. They all came here and used this facility for their social functions because it was one of the largest in the community. I mean, where we're standing right now is absolutely gorgeous. Yes, think, it is. I think people don't realize it until, say, they walk past it or stand where we're standing right at the top to see yes. what Charles and Willa actually had and then what they lost. Yes. I mean, does it make you angry to think about yes. all of that? I'm angry about the way that Charles and Willa Bruce and their family was treated, terrorized, threatened, and harassed, and attacked. White residents feared an invasion by the African-American community in Manhattan Beach. They set up barricades to keep black beachgoers from getting to the ocean. And members of the Ku Klux Klan, active along the California coast, reportedly attacked the Bruce's resort. They slashed tires. They burned mattresses under the porch of the resort. They tried to blow up a gas meter of one of the residents here. They had 24-hour, 24-7 phone campaigns of threats against Willa and her family. Manhattan Beach city officials invoked eminent domain in 1924. They claimed to build a public park. And the resort, once a safe haven for black families, was shuttered and demolished. The Bruce's requested $120,000 for both damages and the value of the property. Instead, the city granted them $14,500. Today, the two parcels of land are worth an estimated $75 million. Bruce's Beach is one example of land theft that's taken place across the United States through violence, intimidation, and legal maneuvers. For generations, black landowners like the Bruce's have been victimized by eminent domain abuse and unjust property laws.
Is there any way to calculate the total amount of money black property owners have lost in the United States over the course of generations? So what I'd say is we're talking in the trillions. This is Thomas Mitchell, a property law scholar from Texas A&M University. He's worked to reform the discriminatory policies that have stripped African-Americans of their land. I'm part of a research team called the Land Loss and Reparations Research Project. And what our research team is doing is trying to put an economic value on the agricultural land black farmers unjustly lost over the course of the last hundred years. And our research team has come up with a preliminary estimate of $300 billion in just lost economic value of the land itself. And we're also then going further and saying, well, as a result of losing this land, well, we lost the ability to benefit from the land ownership in terms of families getting loans to send their children to college and universities, which then has a negative impact on economic mobility. And that's just black farmers. There's a lot of African-Americans who have lost property in this country who are not black farmers. And so we're talking trillions. But here's the thing. Families like the Bruce's, whose property was taken generations ago, they're not entitled to get it back. Statutes of limitation restrictions prevent that. Mitchell points to the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 when white mobs tried to destroy what was known as Black Wall Street. What we got out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, yes, there was a state commission. Yes, it did do a detailed report. Yes, that detailed report documented tremendous and horrible abuses and killings and burning of businesses and taking of property, but it didn't lead to one penny. It didn't lead to a single property being returned. Bruce's Beach is different because the government actually stepped in. The California legislature passed a law to give the land back. The Bruce's case represents the first instance in the history of the United States where an African-American family or community that had their property taken unjustly ended up having it returned. Literally, there's not been another instance in U.S. history. Now that there's a first, what are the chances of there being another? What we're going to have to ask ourselves is, is the Bruce's Beach case a recognition that the time has come for real racial justice in this country? Can this serve as a template for providing effective redress to other African-American families who have had their property taken unjustly? Um... And so we'll see. Justice for Bruce's Beach. Yeah. Power to the people, power to my people. Yes. That's the voice of Kavon yes. Ward speaking at the press conference with Governor Newsom last week. Newsom said Ward was a driving force behind the Bruce's Beach movement, and that led to her starting the organization, Where Is My Land? Through Where Is My Land? The fight for restorative and reparative justice continues nationally. No justice, no, no peace. When Ward learned about Bruce's Beach last year, she says she vowed to make a change. I informed the family that I would do anything in my power to help them um, not only uh, get restitution for their loss of civil rights, their loss of business enterprise, but... For me, I felt like justice was getting their land back. On the opposite coast in Philadelphia, Ashanti Martin was on a similar mission. 
The two were introduced through a mutual friend, and together Ward and Martin co-founded Where Is My Land. I read about George Floyd's ancestor, Hillary Thomas Stewart, back in the uh, late 1800s, had owned 500 acres of land in North Carolina, and that land was stolen by white farmers. I think there's no question had George Floyd's ancestors kept that land in their family, his life outcomes would have uh, transformed. Now, you two officially founded the Where's My Land project in July of 2021. Ashanti, what was the goal? What's the, what was the initial goal? Um, well, the initial goal was to continue Kavan's work encouraging people, encouraging black families. We know that there are black families who who know they have land, they know where it is, and they have been trying to get it back. It's gonna be a massive undertaking, but we believe it and we, we believe that people will act and people will support this and people will be upset when they learn this history. And speaking of the massive challenge, so in 2001, the Associated Press conducted a a very deep dive investigation into black land loss. So this is an article from 2001, 20 years ago, and I want to read a part of it. Uh, Quote, no one knows how many black families have been unfairly stripped of their land, but there are indications of extensive loss. Besides the 107 cases the Associated Press documented, reporters found evidence of dozens more that could not be fully verified because of gaps in the public record. Kavan, when you hear that, I mean, do you almost feel like this is a massive mountain that maybe in your lifetime you won't be able to climb? Absolutely. I don't think that we can... (laughs) we can handle all of this within my lifetime. But um, I think it's important to raise the next generation of the youth to be able to handle it within their lifetimes and their children's lifetimes. I think this is something that, you know, it it took a long time for, you know, the land to be stolen didn't happen overnight. And so getting it back is going to take even longer because there's so many obstacles and roadblocks in the way. And so the only thing we can do is make sure that we're dealing with this one family at a time. This can be catalytic. What we're doing here today can be done and replicated anywhere else. The Bruce family says they won't move to Manhattan Beach or build on the land that's now being returned to them. Instead, they'll rent the lifeguard training center back to the county of Los Angeles. Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd, who we heard from earlier, says reclaiming Bruce's Beach was just the first step. Now he says his family will continue their fight for restitution for the loss of revenue over the past 97 years. When you help start a scout troop, there's no guarantee that one of the scouts will grow up and be in the movies. But you never know. Call the Boy Scouts of America. 82,000 men have sued the Boy Scouts of America for sexual abuse by scoutmasters. And after the organization denied it for decades, the Boy Scouts now admit to the victims' allegations. Now, we want to warn you that this conversation discusses the sexual abuse of children. Here's NPR's Wade Goodwin in Dallas. 
From almost its very beginning, the Boy Scouts of America have been targeted by sexual predators. The Scouts began keeping a secret list of accused Scout predators back in 1919 in a mostly failed effort to keep them out. Scout masters, when caught, could independently relocate to a different state, join a new Scout troop, and start over with no one knowing. Local chapters had no idea the national organization had secret folders full of known and suspected sexual predators. They've institutionalized child molestation, and it's perpetuated and it's protected these perpetrators. In the late 1970s, Frank Spinelli was a 10-year-old Boy Scout living on Staten Island with his parents and sisters. He was brutally sexually assaulted for three years by Bill Fox, a scoutmaster who was also a New York City policeman. Spinelli's parents loved Fox and the way he took Frank under his wing. Here's Spinelli speaking with NPR last year. One day he said to me, I want you to tell your parents you're going to sleep over my house. My father drove me to his house. Bill took me upstairs. You know, this is the first time I'm seeing a naked man. I mean, this is the first time I'm seeing a naked person other than myself, you know. With more than 82,000 victims, 27 law firms, and over 7,800 perpetrators, it's not surprising there are divisions about whether the compensation is adequate. It's currently over a billion and a half dollars with the negotiations ongoing. Victims could receive as little as $3,500 with the top award for those suffering repeated aggressive abuse around $60,000. However, it's likely these numbers will increase as mediation continues. Ken Rothweiler is a lawyer whose firm represents nearly 17,000 survivors. His advice is to take the settlement offer. What we realize is no amount of money can appropriately compensate these men for what they've been through. Their stories are horrific. But in terms of doing the best that we can possibly do under the circumstances, yeah, I am somewhat pleased with where we are. I mean, we're probably only half done. We've got it, you know, still negotiating on a daily basis. An official committee appointed by the Justice Department to protect the victim's self-interest opposes the settlement, saying it pays too little. The current offer will leave the Scouts with about a billion dollars over the minimum it would need to survive. In a statement, the Boy Scouts of America wrote, we are deeply saddened by the pain and suffering that survivors of past abuse have endured and are committed to fulfilling our social and moral responsibility to equitably compensate survivors while also ensuring the scouting mission continues. NPR spoke with Dr. Frank Spinelli again after suffering three years of sometimes violent sexual abuse at the hands of his scoutmaster, the settlement is not enough, and it's not just about the money either. I don't feel there's any cosmic calculation that is going to equal the damage that I've endured, but I think what we want is to see constructive changes in the Boy Scouts of America, and the only way you can do this is by winning damages. And it's certainly not going to amount to $3,500. There may be somebody in Texas who needs $3,500. That's not the case with me, and that's why I will not vote for this. We cannot give in to bullying, and we cannot be victimized again by an organization who is tone deaf to what we're really in search of. The survivors will now vote on the proposed settlement. The deadline is in two months, December 14th. Wade Goodwin, NPR News, Dallas. 
caller that just dialed in, are you close to the Michigan area? You don't have to answer if you don't want to divulge, but. Yes, I'm in Michigan. Okay. Do you know of Robert Anderson? I never heard of him before until this came out. I, I'm a U of M grad. Oh, wow. And um, never heard, heard anything about him. If you travel in Ann Arbor to University Avenue in front of University of Michigan President Mark Schlissel's house these days, you'll see the usual for this time of year, students walking by, the leaves rustling beautifully in the green trees all around. This is the heart of Ann Arbor's campus in many ways and in some ways the heart of what the university is all about. But there are also some people. John Vaughn and a group of other survivors of sexual abuse, including those who were abused by Dr. Robert Anderson, have been occupying the sidewalk in front of President Schlissel's house, drawing attention to what's going on here and hoping that Schlissel, or perhaps someone from the Board of Regents, would come out and do what they have declined to do so far, talk to them. John Vaughn is a storied member of the University of Michigan's football team and a graduate of the school who went on to many glories, both in professional sports and in business. And we've talked to him before about his treatment at the hands of Dr. Robert Anderson. John Vaughn, welcome back to Stateside. Thank you. I'm um, honored to be here. The last time we talked to you was just shortly after you spoke publicly for the first time about having survived sexual abuse. And it was pretty obvious from that conversation that there hadn't been one flick of a light switch or one moment when this all crashed down on you, but you'd been going through a process of even coming to terms and putting a name to what had happened. You know, this was a long path. Where would you say that path has you right now? Oh, um, if, if, if I may, February of 1992, I think where my mother placed this seed in my head and we were watching Oprah one day and something had happened on that show that inspired my mother to talk about her experience in the civil rights movement for the first time in great detail and one of the things that she talked about was like um, being a second grade uh, elementary teacher she talked about you it was more than just what you learn in school there were whites and blacks and males and female young and old american indians it wasn't about so much civil rights it was about human rights it was the human condition you know then she looks at me and she said one day you're um, you're going to be faced with something that's bigger than you and i know you're going to stand because that's the way i raise you there was a moment uh about I would say 90 to 120 days ago um, where I learned that in this mediation process and in how we've been relegated to being John Doe's uh, victims or in some case villains, I kind of got like a little fed up uh, because I, I learned from a good, who's now become a really good friend of mine, Chuck Christian, who's dealing with stage four prostate cancer that we've now had two guys that have died, um, one last fall and one this spring since mediation. And all the tactics and the games that were being played, um, I just started to say, I don't know how much longer I can do this. 
by do this, you mean just letting the process play letting out? Letting the process play out. You know, letting them dictate, continually calling me John Doe, continually making us faceless, nameless um, voices, continuing to hide behind the Block M, continuing to hide behind their lawyers and COVID and Zoom and all these things. And um, so I personally started researching, like, radical movements that changed history that started on the campus of the University of Michigan and knew that it was trending toward at some point in time we have to do something radical. Um, that is know, a history. Yeah, that is, that, that is a history. And we were looking at that outside of Michigan, the national international media isn't cover what we know as victims as the greatest sexual abuse, rape, and cover-up in the history of sports. And so I started researching, um, you know, peaceful protests and the progress that the, they had back in the day and history in this, not only country, but this university. And I was like, okay, you know, I think this is where my life is trending. And uh, then some significant events happened in which there was blatant disrespect and it all culminated. So I started studying and preparing my body and preparing my mind um, for what I would would be my moment of no more. And then when I basically said, yeah, I'm doing it, because I hadn't told anybody about this, was when we went to the uh, Board of Regents meeting in person. This was in September. Yeah, this you, was you, some of you literally had, three weeks ago. I yeah, think. some yeah. of you had had gone to uh, Michigan Stadium to the big house and been outside there, but that presence at the Board of Regents meeting really seems like it was absolutely an the first time point. they were in person in five hundred something days. Um, there were games that were being played. We had to sue, I think, earlier that week for more victims to be able to speak during those meetings. Um, but the thing that really frustrated me is. Michigan doesn't care about the optics as it pertains to us because we don't mean anything to them. That one of the first things that happened in that Board of Regents meeting where you've got more survivors there personally than ever before, you give the man who instituted, or let's just say one of his first acts when he knew about this tragedy was hire the attorney for Jeffrey Epstein, you give him a 3% raise. And at that point, when I walked out of that meeting, I was like, all right, I'm doing it. So I called my trainer. I called my nutritionist and said, I'm going to fast and I'm going to sit outside, you know, until we stop playing these games and they speak to us across the table. We're not going to take this anonymous game playing where your brand is out there, but yet us as individuals and humans aren't. What would happen if Mark Schlissel were to come out and talk to you? I mean, you guys have you guys have been out here for, for be days, five days now. at seven o'clock. Yeah, it's it's been, and it's been a it's been a process away from here too at the at the mediation table where the university is talking with attorneys for the survivors. Yeah, which is, is there, a joke. I mean, is there honestly. is there anything more that would happen? No, I mean, like ultimately. You know, just from a human standpoint, and, you know, so many people, so many students have even asked this. Like, if, if a man is camped out on your front, you know, right at the end of your property line, at a minimum, you want to go and introduce yourself to him and just 
this this humanized the situation. We know that the mediation, this case, and all the things with it aren't going to be solved by that. But at what a magnanimous gesture that would be not... I can't change what happened to me. But all of the students that you represent would see that. And I think it's too late. That would have gone a long way. It's too late for that now. Who have you met in sitting out oh, out here for for no. all these all these days? Some of you know some people I know their names. Uh, I've met the faces of sexual abuse survivors, supporters that live and attend this university, that work in this university, uh, that love this university. I've had. Um, you know, Sunday morning there was a couple in their 80s and they saw the news the night before and they were like, we just wanted to come and see you and just say thank you for what you're doing. And they had driven all the way from like east of Detroit. But at the same time, I've met new survivors of Anderson and Nasser that I didn't even know that have come to uh, stand in solidarity how long will you stay? Huh. Till the job is done. Um, I bought a one-way ticket. Um, <laughs> you know what I, you know, and I, I don't care if they notice or not. The biggest thing about my time in Michigan and being coached by Bo Schembechler and in that era, you taught us to thrive in a constant state of being uncomfortable in a sport that is controlled chaos. You built me for this fight. So until you're talking maybe three-digit days, you have no idea how I have chessed this out in my mind. I prepared 60 days just to go the first 30 with a reevaluation plan after 30. I have a friend of mine who has stage four prostate cancer who is leaving his home in Boston this morning and he will be here tonight, who's a survivor of Dr. Anderson. To stand with us, he's my brother. He's a Michigan man. He's a football player. His name is Chuck Christian. I will stand until he gets justice because he's five years into a three and a half year death sentence. So how long will I stand? till the job is done. John Vaughn, thank you so much for talking to us and for uh, everything you're standing for right now. Thank you. If you're interested, there is going to be a public vigil right outside President Schlissel's residence Wednesday night at 7 p.m. We reached out to the university for comment on John Vaughn's protest. We have not yet heard back. You gotta fight! Los Gatos mom arrested in another state and is being brought back to the Bay Area to face charges. She's accused of throwing drunken parties for her teenage son and friends, and she's even accused of setting up sexual encounters between minors.
Good evening to you. I'm Andre Senior. Frank is off. And I'm Julie Hayner, a mom from Los Gatos, again, accused of throwing drunken house parties for young teens and encouraging sex acts, sometimes even watching. The Santa Clara County District Attorney just filed dozens of charges, including child abuse, sexual assault, and providing alcohol to minors. KTVU investigative reporter Brooks Jarose joins us now after looking into what detectives are calling a long list of destructive house parties. Brooks. Well, Julie, for eight months, beginning last summer, the district attorney's office says Shannon O'Connor supplied excessive amounts of alcohol to her teenage son and his friends. They would vomit, be unable to stand, and often pass out. Then O'Connor is accused of encouraging them to engage in sexual activity and would even help set up the encounters with and sometimes watch. The 47-year-old, you see her here, now lives in Eagle, Idaho, and was just arrested on Saturday. She'll be extradited back to Santa Clara County. Prosecutors say she'd buy alcohol, provide condoms, and told the teens to not tell their parents or call for help if one of them passed out because she could go to jail. At one party at her house in Los Gatos, she's accused of handing an underage boy a condom and pushed him into a room with a young girl. At a New Year's Eve party, investigators say she watched and laughed as a drunk teen battered a young girl in bed. Documents say during parties, defendants, the defendant would have rooms available for minors to engage in sexual activity. She would also tell minor girls to go into certain rooms with minor boys waiting for them. If girls refused, defendant would take them aside for a private conversation until they would go into those rooms. Other allegations include O'Connor texting or Snapchatting teens to sneak out of their homes to drink at her house. Letting an underage boy drive her SUV in Los Gatos High School parking lot while two other intoxicated teens held on the back. One of them fell off and suffered a concussion. And chatting with one of her son's friends, encouraging him to hook up with girls and then asking for details about those sexual experiences. District Attorney Jeff Rosen saying it took a lot of brave children to come forward and to untangle this deeply disturbing case. As a parent, I'm shocked. As a DA, I'm determined to hold those adults who endanger children fully accountable to the law and to our community. Now, O'Connor, who is also known as Shannon Bruga, is charged with 39 criminal counts, including child abuse, child endangerment, sexual assault, and providing alcohol to minors. We've requested to speak with her from jail in Idaho, but have not heard back. If convicted, though, she faces jail time and would have to register as a sex offender. In the studio, Brooks Jarose, KTVU Fox 2 News. Why haven't you learned anything? The board voted 4-1 to one to move non-agenda items to the end of meetings and to stop speakers from raising signs. The resolution also allows board members to limit the number of speakers at meetings. The near-unanimous motion followed months of hour-long meetings that have sometimes ended in violence. Member Matt Susan, who voted for the measure, says the resolution is a kumbaya moment between the board and parents who come to the meetings. We appreciate all the parents. We appreciate very good discourse. We appreciate your opportunity to speak to us, but we also need to protect when people are doing things that aren't appropriate, like we've seen either in our county or in other places. Member Katie Campbell, who also voted for the resolution, says it'll protect board members and parents, along with the school kids who get dragged along to meetings. I hate when we get to the point where people are really out of control and using ugly language because we have children in our audience. And I that's, you know, this is that directly affects those individual students as, any, as well as anyone who would be watching from home.
But member Jennifer Jenkins, who voted against the resolution, says it's too little, too late. Jenkins says she's been threatened for months with little action taken to protect her. I don't reject people coming here and speaking their voice. They, they do it all the time. We, we, don't, we don't stop them from doing that. I don't reject them standing outside my home. Um, I reject them following me around in a car, following my car around. I reject them saying that they're coming for me, that they're that I need to beg for mercy. The National School Boards Association sent a letter to President Joe Biden last month asking for help investigating credible threats against school boards across the country. The Florida School Boards Association says it cares for the safety of school board members, but called the action an overreach and is withholding NSBA membership dues for the year. Danielle Pryor, WMFE News. A new investigation by ProPublica and Nashville Public Radio has uncovered an alarming pattern of arresting and detaining elementary school children in one Tennessee county. Lisa Desjardins has the story. Rutherford County, Tennessee has detained a record number of children, some as young as seven years old in past years. Some were arrested for playground fights, others for cursing. In one 2016 case, four elementary school age girls were detained for failing to intervene in a fight. A disproportionate number of the children involved and arrested were black. Mariba Knight from National Public Radio is the lead writer on the report, and she joins us now. Thank you so much, Mariba. The focus is on this one county, Rutherford County, and an attorney there told you at, at one point some 500 kids he thought had been arrested by mistake, and another 1,500 detained over a point of time uh, as part of a jailing system that seems like it was subjective. Uh, essentially, at, one, at points, police and judge were deciding on how the kid looked or how the kid was acting in a moment, whether they would be detained. At the center of your story is the arrest of 11 children surrounding that idea of a fight, who intervened, who didn't. Can you explain exactly what happened with those kids and, and how? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, essentially, you set it up really well. There were 11 children in all that were arrested for watching a fight. Uh, the two that were actually involved in fighting were so young, five and six, that uh, they weren't culpable for their actions, but the other children were. And they were arrested under the charge of criminal responsibility, which as we outlined in the story, was not even a real charge. Um, it's a prosecutorial theory. So one can't be charged with criminal responsibility. One can be, say, charged with assault under criminal responsibility. But that's just the beginning of kind of the myriad mistakes that happened in this case. Uh, so yeah, they wound up arresting 11 kids in total using this charge. Uh, there were uh, a, an eight-year-old with pigtails arrested and handcuffed. Uh, a sixth grader fell to her knees. A fourth grader threw up in the assistant principal's office when she found out she was being arrested. It was just a terrible, terrible experience for these children and a terrible moment for this system. But it really shined a light on what was happening. Help us understand the role of those in power who seem to even create this system, an elected judge, and then also police officers. How did this happen? Yeah, so these arrests, as you outlined, took place in Rutherford County, which, as we write in the story, had been illegally arresting and jailing kids for years, all under the watch of one judge, 
juvenile court judge Donna Scott Davenport. She has been the county's only juvenile court judge since 2000 when the court began. And she has a really outsized role. She oversees the courts and she oversees the juvenile jail. And up until this incident, she directed police on what she called our process for arresting kids, which basically was every child who was arrested, even for something minor like this or like truancy, they must first go to the jail. The judge told law enforcement this explicitly in a memo. This is not normal routine procedure with children. Um, then the second part of this is that once they got to the jail, they were subjected to something called the filter system, which was implemented by the jailer, Lynn Duke. And that was an overly broad assessment of what a child was deemed, whether a child was deemed a true threat. I can talk more about that, but it was overly broad, it was illegal, and it was happening for decades. You know, there's a lot of discussion about this topic of what incarceration does. The judge in this case has argued on radio shows that this policy was meant to build character and that kids would come out of this detention system better. What did you find about how kids were affected? Oh, I had an interview with one child who simply said to me, we are not coming out better. Uh, it, it, this has affected children in so many ways. It, we opened the story with this mass arrest. The, the children involved in that, many of them had to go to counseling. They were lucky enough to get settlements from uh, the county where there was money earmarked for counseling. But I talked to them and they had bad dreams. They were scared they were gonna get picked up at school and arrested again at any moment. Um, there was another young man we spoke to who was kept for four days and denied his medication for bipolar. Uh, after he was released, uh, he was put on house arrest, and he tried to commit suicide three times in the coming year. So the impact on this children is real, it is ever-present, and it is wide-ranging. Is this still happening? And have there been any repercussions for the people who put this policy in place? There have been no repercussions except for the settlements. Uh, some of this has been stopped thanks to federal judges intervening. When lawyers have brought class action lawsuits, they have forced the filter system to stop. They have forced solitary confinement to stop. But the architects of this system are still in power. The judge is still the judge. The jailer is still the jailer. And there's also other mechanisms of oversight that are woefully inadequate that we outline in the story. Uh, just one example is the Tennessee Department of Children's Services they licensed juvenile jails across the state. They inspected this facility twice a year, and never once did they flag this illegal system. And it was right there in black and white in the manual for this facility. So yes, there has been some consequences as far as money and payouts to families, but the architects are still there and the systems of oversight are still inadequate. Such important reporting. Maribah Knight of Nashville Public Radio, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. But we begin tonight with criminal charges against four former security guards and the death of a man inside Northland Mall seven years ago. Thank you for joining us for Action News at 6. 
I'm Dave Llewellyn. Mackenzie Cochran died in 2014. The incident made national headlines after video surfaced, and we want to warn you, it is disturbing. This video shows security guards holding Cochran down. You can hear Cochran repeatedly saying that he couldn't breathe. The state attorney general and others noting the similarities between Cochran's death and the more recent death of George Floyd. For years, protesters have been calling for justice in Cochran's death, demanding that criminal charges be filed. 7 Action News reporter Simon Shaykhead has broken ground on this story since it first made headlines years ago. Today, he shares the next chapter in this story. Covering the death of 25-year-old Mackenzie Cochran back in January of 2014, we showed you cell phone video no one could forget. Today, nearly eight years later, came the moment his family's been waiting for. Those were the final words 25-year-old Mackenzie Cochran screamed as cell phone video showed him being held down with a knee in his back by multiple security guards at the now-demolished Northland Mall in 2014. More video from earlier also showed him being pepper-sprayed by a guard for not following commands to leave. But in an incident mirroring the death of George Floyd, former Oakland County Prosecutor Jessica Cooper chose not to pursue criminal charges back then. The cases being so similar in nature, I can only hope. Only six months ago, Mackenzie's brother Michael again expressed outrage over the lack of justice. Well, good afternoon, Your Honor. Fast forward to today, after a thorough review by Southfield Police and the Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, comes a decision to charge four former guards with involuntary manslaughter, punishable by as much as 15 years in prison. What does justice look like for the Cochran family at this point? Well, even belated justice is still justice. Family attorney Milt Greenman reacting to charges against John Sieberling, Gavin King, Lucius Hamilton, and Aaron Marie. But this will bring closure to the family, hopefully, and that's that's hopefully what occurs. In court, Sieberling and King both ordered to wear a GPS tether, possess no firearms, and have no contact with co-defendants after being granted a low personal bond. Two other defendants not in custody are expected to be arraigned soon. In the meantime, a prior civil case brought by the Cochran family gives insight into how guards viewed what happened. Did you ever witness any security officers on top of Mr. Cochran? No. Do we hear Mackenzie Cochran saying, I can't breathe? I do not hear that. Again, your head is five or six inches from him, right? Yes. On the videotape, you can hear him screaming, I can't breathe. Are you denying that? I'm saying he never spoke to me. An autopsy has ruled Mackenzie's death the result of positional asphyxia. Attorneys for both men arraigned maintain their client's innocence and deny evidence supports these charges, despite a supervising guard admitting to saying, Whatever you do, do not let him up. Don't let him get up. I have reviewed um, some of the videos, and I, I do believe that he's innocent of these charges. If they wanted to bring the charges, they should have brought them back then. Both men arraigned are due back in court on October 28th. Also tomorrow at 10 a.m., the Michigan Attorney General has scheduled a press conference to talk about this case. Simon Shaykat, 7 Action News. The man, the man not. not. Race, Race class, class, genre, genre and the dilemmas, dilemmas of black manhood. Black manhood. It's like every other black man I watch go out on TV and this is my turn. Clifford Ownsby tells me he's still grappling with the trauma, hoping national attention will spark real change. Ownsby says he's a businessman and was picking up cable boxes at one of his properties. 
Shortly after I got down the street, I heard whoop whoop. So I pulled over immediately. Um, it seemed like before I can even the officers were already out and you know, at my door. So I'm, I'm like, wow, that was fast, like fast as I ever seen in my life. Body camera footage released by Dayton police show officers telling Owensby to get out of the car. I cannot step out. I'm a paraplegic. I cannot. I'm a paraplegic, sir. Come on, come on, bro. Owensby asks to speak with a supervisor. Officers then drag Owensby out of the car while he screams for help. The way that they had treated me during that traffic stop, I only, I only feel like I seen some. I was an actor in a movie out of roots that out a movie I was taught growing up about racists and slaves. In a community incident briefing released on Friday, Dayton police say officers had been alerted to a suspected drug house officers were monitoring. The department also says based upon Owensby's felony drug and weapon history, along with leaving a suspected drug house, officers requested a narcotics detection canine at the scene for a free air sniff on the vehicle. Dayton police say the canine alerted them and they discovered over $22,000 in Owensby's car. But the NAACP says the department's defense is an example of systemic racism. It's the assumption that because they're from uh, a particular community, a particular culture, then we assume Unfortunately, sometimes criminality just based on that. Owensby's complaint with the NAACP says the arrest was unlawful because Dane police racially profiled him. The complaint also states there was an illegal search and seizure of Owensby's property and that he was never read his Miranda rights. Yet the Dayton Police Department says since June of 2020, they addressed the majority of the community's police reform recommendations. Do you think these reforms have made any impact whatsoever? And what do you really want to see happen here following this incident? Uh, they have 142 recommendations, but you need a leader at the top. So you need a police chief that's going to look at these particular situations that's going to fully execute the recommendations that's outlined by the citizens. Dr. Derek Fulward, the president of Dayton's NAACP, is now demanding Dayton police to train officers on an ongoing basis to respond with empathy when working with disenfranchised communities. Fulward adding implicit bias trainings must be monitored for impact. I think this type of stuff probably happens all the time. I'm just thankful. If they were willing to do all of that stuff while the cameras were rolling, I can only imagine what would have happened if no cameras was rolling. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to 
conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. Eric, the victim's family says Bobby Gale is on the mend, but he's still in a lot of pain. Stockton police say it's still very early on in their investigation, but they're actively searching for his shooter. One, I've been shot. Pray for me. I swear to God, please, in the name of Jesus, hallelujah. This is the voicemail Marlon Gale heard Friday night, just moments after his older brother Bobby Gale was shot in Stockton. It's like your worst nightmare, right? It's like you never want a call like that. Surveillance video from a business near the Hammerhead Shopping Center captured the suspect firing at Bobby. Gale describes what his brother said happened that night. He was driving in the wrong direction. He almost hit my brother and his friend. So my brother said, hey, slow down. And that's when a guy got out the car. And he starts saying the N-word and shooting my brother. We were just like, wow, he didn't just, he was trying to kill my brother. Bobby was found on the ground and was rushed to the hospital where he's now recovering after his family says he was shot seven times. It's my brother, um, he's a hardworking man and um, he's loved by everybody. And I'm glad that this is something that took his life. A brazen act uh, of violence that uh, obviously we don't condone. Stockton police confirm they're now investigating the shooting as a possible hate crime and have contacted both the FBI and the California Department of Justice. The shooter was described as a white male adult in his 30s. He's dangerous and nobody should ever have to experience this. This should not happen. Gell says it's a miracle his brother is alive and says their family won't let this racist attack define them. Our message is love and hope and justice and truth. So we want the guy to be found, but at the same time, we're just so thankful and we're not gonna let that, that, that message of hatred take away that, that blessing that our brother is alive and that um, you know hatred and violence, it will never win. Stockton Crime Stoppers is offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. In this case, anyone with information is asked to call Stockton Police. Live in Stockton, Christy Gross, Fox 40 News. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday. October 17, excuse me, 16, got ahead of myself. October 16, 2021, so I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, counter-racist suggestions. The number to dial, 720-716-7300. The code, 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound Press star six one if you would like to participate. Again, our weekly compensatory call-in. Hopefully we'll have a few views, thoughts, suggestions on uh, things that happened over the past week. Uh, we will be here tomorrow for the Global Sunday Talk on Racism, uh, irregular time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 
12 noon Pacific. I will be here. Uh, I was initially, Andrew, for folks who've been listening for a while, he's in London. He sent me a report. It's Black History Month in England currently, October, every October. So this website over there, they had material that was recognizing Black History Month, and they had a report that featured Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Race soldiers went ballistic, like, oh, my gosh, he's calling us mutant albinos and all the rest of it, and you take it down right now. Made them censor it and remove the con- uh, content featuring Dr. Welsing. Was going to be, oh, wow, we should make sure we talk about that and whatever else they're doing for Black History Month, get our COVID update, all the rest of it. Then uh, they had uh, one of the elected officials uh, in the U.K., uh, David Ames, I think that's how you say his last name, Ames, uh, he was stabbed and killed uh, on Friday, and they immediately labeled it an act of terrorism, Islamic extremism, they said, immediately. So that is you know, causing a lot of attention, so I'm sure we'll talk about both of those uh, amongst other topics tomorrow. Global Sunday Talk, again, uh, irregular time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Global System of White Supremacy. Few other things, and then we will get to the callers. Number one, I had a listener email me, and I won't get into the full details of the email. I just share one component, and it was because this phrase I've heard this uh, repeatedly over the years uh, from cows listeners. I think I've even heard it beyond you know the cows. And this time that I heard the phrase, person said, man, it's been, you know, tough week on the plantation, racism, white supremacy in all areas. Lots of us can say that, I'm sure. He said, man, I'm, you know, speaking to an attempted care mate, sharing like, man, being terrorized on the job, neutralizing workplace uh, racism, Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. He said, I'm being terrorized on the job and just, you know, making stuff up, trying to get me in trouble and everything. Man, it's tough. And... The attempted care mate, victim of racism. Oh, here you go with that black shit again. Pardon my French, as they say, but I feel like that was one that can't be censored because I've heard that phrase expressed exactly numerous times, and it's generally the same type of content. I remember another time, this is also a cow's listener, uh, where they said, hey, I work with a lot of black people, try to, you know, ship Dr. Wellesley's material, talk to them about racism, white supremacy, and, you know, problems we experience. And he said that they tell him, and he said they would get a specific tone, like, uh, all of them, you get the, the groan, and then, uh, I do not want to hear any of that black shit. <laughs> he said that's the exact way that they would say it. They would they would make sure to enunciate every <laughs> like whoo that is enough to uh send you to Wendy's or McDonald's and binge out on some salty potato chips or something like uh hypertension man but i've heard that phrase a lot that is a product of white supremacy and particularly for someone saying man mistreated on the job and uh, 
mental health, very important. Very few resources for victims of racism. Hopefully the cows have been one. Let's see. One other thing, then I'll share a few tidbits on some of the reports. We'll get to the callers. Uh, I had to go back and double check to make sure that I had the dates and the wording accurate. Dylan Stormroof, his terrorist assault, Mother AME Church in South Carolina, Charleston, was June 17, 2015. We had Dr. Francis Crest Welsing on the program that Friday to discuss all of this. That attack, June 17, 20 days before that event, so that would be May 29, 2015, Gusty, I submit, freelance writer, I submit ideas for a writing assignment, uh, and they all pertain to white supremacy racism, of course. And I had the editor employee for this black publication, so-called, told me explicitly, we are moving away from hard-hitting race pieces. Now, Gus did what any intelligent, you know, attempted counter-racist scientist would do. What do you mean, hard-hitting race pieces? I didn't get that explained, but that was 20 days exactly before Dylan Storm Roos attack. Just something that I remember when I think about where we are working against the problem, production of justice. Whew, man, tough times, very tough times. Let's see, uh, with the report, speaking of words being important, uh, I would it would be fantastic. It's almost 2022 in a most constructive manner. No more usage of the term Jim Crow. Even if we're talking about things that happened in the 1930s, 1920s, 1940s, 1800s, wherever, none of that is Jim Crow. If we're talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma, that is a white supremacist purge. If we're talking about the Bruce Beach in California, terrorism, property theft, part of a long tradition of white terrorism. None of that is Jim Crow, so-called. Words are very important. Let's see. All righty, the first report, see if I can try and go in order to some degree. The first report that we heard, Victoria Chang, a listener, mailed me that report. A number of listeners emailed me reports during the week, untiljustice at gmail.com. She's talking about her uh, book, Being a Victim of White Supremacy, and saying, man, you know, I wish my parents who are immigrants, non-white, non-black, but still victims, I wish they had, you know, told me how to talk to white people. How do you give a lecture in front of a room full of white people? Better prepared me to deal with racism, white supremacy. I think many, many non-white people all over the world end up saying the same thing. Very, very important. Speak with your offspring about white supremacy racism. It is the dominant force in the universe. Hopefully the cows has been of some assistance with that as well. Justice is here and all, remember? Be honest with your children and even be honest, I'm still learning. 
So I'm making mistakes myself and trying as best I can to, you know, acknowledge that and do better and get more accurate information so that I can share that with you. But I mean, this, this is a tough situation that we're in. Being honest with your offspring about that is important. Uh, but Victoria Chang, uh, she's reflecting on all this with her parents. And I didn't talk about that time around. Uh, and she says that she's trying to do this with her children. I thought that was important for many reasons because she said with her children, she talks with them uh, about misogyny. Heard that term with John Gruden, sexism. Interesting how those terms pop up. We started out talking about racism. Now we're talking about misogyny and sexism. And generally as though only females experience gender-based abuse or mistreatment, not black males, not non-white males. Hmm. But more importantly, Victoria Chang, she says, now I have so-called interracial children, cowbell. Now, that might not be a cowbell. Or actually, I take the back, sorry. At first, I did not know because they didn't give any details. See, that's when I really, it is so tacky and a part of the confusion when they have all of these white people interviewing non-white people and they pretend that they don't know anything about racism and so they can just talk to these victims and say things like when Victoria Chang says she has interracial children. What do you mean interracial? Even if you're not going to do that, you're married to a white man? Or just get clarification because that's important. I looked since she didn't ask that question. So according to reports, she's married the OC register specifically. Uh, Victoria Chang is married to Todd Terlecki, according to all the information that I could find and matching up in California where they live and all the rest of it. It seems pretty likely Todd Terlecki is a white man, so it would be a cowbell. That would be an interesting, significant, not just interesting, significant in part of the report. We're talking about racism and children speaking honestly or parents speaking honestly with their children about racism, preparing them for the world. She even brings up that she has interracial children. Let's be clean, because I mean, sometimes they'll say interracial children, meaning if you have a so-called Asian person with a so-called black person. That's not interracial. Or I don't even use that term. Make it specific. You have a white husband? Okay, got it. And your children cannot pass as white, be accepted as white. Got it. Let's see. Next, uh, we heard the report on the water contamination in Michigan, not in Flint, Bittenton, I believe it is, uh, with Reverend Ed Pinckney. Uh, and he also talked about words. He was saying that white elected officials, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, they were talking about kidnapping and killing her, executing her, as it were. Said that they came out and said that the water that people, uh, Michigan citizens needed to use abundant caution or be abundantly cautious. He said, no, 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 no. Tell them that the water is unsafe to drink, unsafe to bathe in, unsafe to brush your teeth. That is substantially, like words are important. Jim Crow, white terrorist purge, abundantly cautious, Unsafe to drink. Be specific. You always get how the vagueness, the ambiguity, 
when it comes to black people, non-white people, then we got to do all be all pussyfoot men, circumloquacious, that matter buckets and buckets of words. Do not drink the water. Be specific. But we have that again. That was Newark, New Jersey, where they had that and Flint, lots of areas. And the patterns seem to be in uh, regions with a high population of black people. Next, uh, they have the report about <clears throat> sodium and the impact on health. Uh, I'll just say if you are eating more plant-based foods, and particularly if you're doing more cooking, that alone will bring your sodium level down. Not going out to eat, because you go out to eat, you're going to be getting probably lots of processed foods. Those processed foods tend to have a lot of salt content. More fruits and vegetables, and that's something that I do. You pick one. So either you have salt on your table and use it sparingly, or you cook with salt and you do not add any salt to your food. You do one, not both. I cook with salt. I do not add any salt to my food, like ever. I don't even I don't even remember the last time that I had like salt on the table like to add to food or eat with. Like that is just what? Now I do use uh soy sauce. That's also a sodium kind of a salty condiment that you would add. I have used uh low sodium soy sauce for years. And I don't think that makes a big difference. I think you can give that to folks who are not very picky or conscientious about their eating habits, and they generally don't, you know, make a big to-do about that either. So just small things that you could do, but a big, I'm a big advocate of uh, cook with salt and then even use it sparingly there, but you do not add. You do one or the other, not both. And like I said, the big thing, eating more plant-based uh, whole foods diet and getting away from going out and eating a lot of processed foods and processed meats and hot dogs and all of that stuff, lunch meat type stuff, lots of sodium. Cheese generally has a lot of salt there. Obviously, the potato chips and all of that, they have a low sodium or even no salt snack options at some of the stores that you can go to. But getting away from that, more fruits and vegetables, plants, legumes and such, unless you add any salt to them, generally, they have the exact perfect amount that you should have to function optimally. Not a nutritionist. Let's see. The segment, they talked about childhood obesity too. All of the same would apply for them as well. They don't need a whole lot of salt and more fruits and vegetables. Uh, they talked about the segment uh, Bruce Beach in California and Again, I just I, this is the second time this week because we had uh, Guy Lancaster, suspected racist, on the program with us Monday, and he talked about the white terrorism purge in Arkansas and some of the same things. Sometimes the records are missing. It can be difficult to go back and find evidence of white terrorism when they stolen property and all of those type of things, killed black people as well. Uh, it can be difficult to find this information sometimes. And I said, hey, this is repeated. Uh, that there are at least 260 purges or more than 260 purges of black people, not black and brown people, black people specifically in this part of the world. Elliot Jasmine's book, maybe we should read that in the book club, Buried in the Bitter Water. Uh, but if 
there are more than 260 purges of entire black towns, that would mean they have to, we have to be talking like tens of thousands of instances where property and houses, beachfront property, whatever it is, has been stolen. Because, I mean, can you imagine how many towns were in Black Wall Street alone? I would think more than three. And the same thing for Wilmington, North Carolina, and Rosewood, and you just keep going on and on and on and on. We got to be talking not thousands, tens of thousands of homes and pieces of property, I would think. Let's see. I'll do maybe one more and then save the rest for later, see if the callers have commentary that they would like to share. Uh, I think it was our caller in Georgia last week. She was commenting about the arrest of the children down in Tennessee. Judge Donna Scott Davenport, suspected race soldier, where she said that, hey, we talking about this program is awesome. These children go into this confinement, greater confinement, and it builds character. They come out better human beings. Now, if it's that great, is this what they do to white people? That's not even what they did to Jeffrey Epstein. Build a little character? No. And then even the words, again, they said the charge was criminal responsibility. I think I got that correctly. They said that this this isn't even an actual charge. They said that this is a theory. Now, I would need someone who's like a, a scholar in jurisprudence to even explain that to me. Like, what? This is not a charge. This is a legal theory, criminal responsibility, and you're going to use this nebulous charge on some children, a lot of black children in Tennessee. Like, really? Not all these sex offenders with the Boy Scouts and everywhere else, the black children in Tennessee. Hmm. All righty. Uh, let's see. That's what. Going to have a black child? It's a lot to think about. Talking about that and what are we going to do as best we can in a very weak position to try to keep that from happening to this child that we say we want to have so bad. Lots of things to discuss before hitting the bedroom. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll get in, I had to go check to, to make sure I had the name correct. Uh, O'Connor, I just looked, I must have risk, uh, written it incorrectly, but uh, I'll give the full name O'Connor because I feel like there's way too much anonymity for race soldiers. But in California, where this white woman, there we go, Sarah O'Connor, there we go, just didn't write it down. Uh, Shannon, I had it right the first time, Shannon O'Connor, this white woman, I was going to do the rewind, but I just kept being shocked anew as they continued with the report. Now, I deliberately played that report right with the Boy Scout segment. They went to Shannon O'Connor. They said the white woman in California, and even she was operating uh, in Idaho as well, break out the man act for her as well. They said that she was supplying liquor, rooms for sexual activity, watching them have sexual activity, laughing like Children, she said that you're supplying them alcohol, the children would vomit and could barely stand. Now, with that and the Boy Scouts, I was again pained to remember, what does that moron say? He says, uh, 
white people don't care about children. We're in the midst of the Rona pandemic still, I thought. Why is this the time? Yes, we need to have a big group party for children with alcohol and sex, and I'll watch. White culture, man, Dr. Robert Anderson in Michigan, the Boy Scouts, Catholic Church, you just keep going on and on. I almost had a segment. I could have played the Chicago lifeguard situation. It seems like a pretty integral aspect of white culture. Maybe I'm mistaken. I'll pause there. Certainly many, 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 many other things to say about what has transpired this week. Number again is 720-716-7300, decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, Make sure everyone has at least one chance to share. That would be grand. Uh, If you know you're in kind of a rowdy environment, uh, if you could get to a quieter area, use your mute button. That would be great, uh, just so we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, If you have multiple things to say, take your five, share your commentary, use your mute button, and then unmute when you're ready to share your additional thoughts, questions, suggestions. Uh, For this program exclusively, if we could not use metaphors, that would be super appreciated. Jim Crow uh, is a metaphor, uh, being truthful. Uh, We heard a number of them uh, throughout, even when they were talking about uh, Judge Donna Scott Davenport, build character, now that's a metaphor right there. Uh, But also uh, they said that mistakes were made with these children being charged and all the rest of it. These are not mistakes. Maybe that's not a metaphor per se, but it's certainly inaccurate language. Race soldiers are supreme, dangerously effective with using metaphors, analogies to practice racism, deception, confusion, victims including Gus. We are still learning sometimes we don't have all of the logic information to articulate our views, and so we'll substitute metaphor, comparison, analogy of some sort for this broadcast if we could try to be as precise as possible uh, with our words, being exact. That is a big component of counter-racism. I will uh, alert uh, about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Uh, Number again is 720-716-7300, code 564-943. Pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Again, this is not uh, to be uh, some sort of uh, foul mouth, uh, gusty. I, I certainly encourage not cursing, especially with other victims of racism. G-rated. They were talking about that at the school board meeting, people coming in and cursing and all that. And they're like, man, we have children present. Like, try to model that on the context of white supremacy for 12 years, justice was here, then I come on and built far and all the rest. But for this one time, this is one where it's, can't censor this, this is important. So if anyone, this, I will uh, see if I maybe only say it one more time after this on the program maybe, but if anyone else, if you have been attempting to speak, share constructive information, attempted counter-racist content perhaps, talking about production of justice, whatever, with another black person, have you been hit with? Oh, 
there you go with that black shit. If we've had any other listeners who've had the misfortune of hearing that phrase, that would be good to know because I've heard it many, many times, (laughs) which is just a testament to the pitiful nature of our status system of white supremacy. Mm. Uh, Let's see. First few folks uh, dialed in with a hand up. Proceed. Greetings, guys. Greetings, callers and listeners. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. sir. Um, And the report where there was a, um, like, all the fear, like one in one, one in four Americans, one in four Americans, um, like fear some sort of hate crime happening. Um, it would be um, really, really constructive if um, that num, if that if it could be one in four people are are now using counter racist logic. Um, that would be um, really, really awesome um, to see. I think it's really tragic that. Um, with all the fear that uh, non-white people are, are experiencing, it seems to be that very, very few people are, are, are attempting to get to the um, the root of the of the problem. And um, also with the um, with the black male um, paraplegic getting um, dragged out of the car, it just reminded me of um, Lily Fuller, "Don't fight, don't fuss, don't flee," um, because oh, you can you can only expect. Um, oh my God. You can only expect um, mistreatment, and um, I mean my line because I'm getting some sort of disturbance. hope that was not the disturbance was not coming from uh our line i did hear a little noise in the background but um yeah hopefully it wasn't coming on our end if things clear and you're able to to share or have any other thoughts feel free to rejoin uh clifford owensby is the black male paraplegic black male in uh california well, right, ohio sorry wrong part of the country uh in ohio uh, who was dragged out of the uh, vehicle, which I guess for him, it was impossible for him to flee, I guess, or fight even. Um, I guess, uh, I don't know. I can't even say he didn't comply, really. Uh, just saying I'm, I'm paraplegic and them dragging him out of the <laughs> Like, uh, man, you can do all the correct things and still be terrorized, unfortunately, in the system of white supremacy. That is, uh, yeah, that is why we need to get this problem solved immediately but yeah no fighting with enforcement officers hopefully more of us have that message incidentally with that one in four when they were talking about the hate crimes and people feeling fearful uh, i just when i saw the data because they were talking about so-called asian americans the data said that people classified as black they had like eight thousand reports of so-called hate crimes over the last year they had less than 900 for individuals so-called asian americans the lead on that report was not non-white people in total. It was just Asian-Americans. And it even said that a smaller number of black people felt fearful of attack. 
lots of confusion all around. More logic needed. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Hello. Uh, greetings, our caller in Georgia. Hi, everyone. I hope you're having the best evening you can have. Um, I haven't been cursed out about talking about um, black stuff or whatever. That's never happened to me. But um, I was listening, I think, on Wednesday to the show or something. And my mother was, you know, she lives here now. She's like, oh, dude, are you listening to that stuff again? You get all worked up. So I thought that was funny because I talked to two two people about the her because she lives here. And every week I talk to my father. I'm not, there's no sign. I'm not on Facebook, Twitter. You know, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm trying to get a job. So I'm definitely not bringing up there because I'm trying to get a job. Um, but yeah, I get worked up. I, I just, I just tell her things like I told her about the, the young people, um, last week. I was like, you know, I told, all I did was tell her about it. She didn't really say anything when I told her about, like, if I read an article or something. But, um, you know, I was listening to this, this program. Um, but it's, it's uncourse division, so, um, and if so, then, you know, my name's on the property. The white people put my name on the property, so I'm not going to tell you about that. Um, the Asian lady, um, I appreciate the compassion, I guess, of this program to ex- to let us know what's going on with all non-white people. Um, honestly, not the top of my list. Um, cause not that I don't feel bad, but unless you're, you know, well, black American, whether they were descendants of slaves or some were descendants of free people or not slaves, but if you are, you know, several generations here, you know, definitely before the ending of slavery, whether your family was slaves or not, um, you have no place to go. You know, she encouraged, she has some place to go. Chinese people, they have some place to go. I told the lady, she was black from Africa. I said, if something happens, you can go back to Nigeria. And I'm not, I wasn't telling her, I'll go back to Nigeria. But, you know, if something happens, she has family there, whatever. And, you know, we go places. We are foreign people everywhere. So I'm sure her issues are real. VGQ. But um, I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm not as concerned as I should be, you know, all the best to work, whatever. Um, Benton Harbor, I heard about that, I think on Thursday, I was listening to another program. That was the first I heard of it. So I guess I have to think about what's going on there, too. But um, I think I said with Flint a long time ago, if there are public universities in the area, that's the first place I would go because usually most public universities, big or small, they'll have some type of science program, biology, chemistry, and 
even if they don't express it with water, they may mostly at times use tap, I mean, distilled water, but they have to wash their hands. And I'm sure they've done some experiments with regular water from the faucets. And I would be, I would want to know some of the results of that research or what they've been doing with that because that would be the place that would show up. And like I said, the on-campus program, students always complain. I don't care. I was a student recently. Students always complain. Um, the best grades ever, they always complain. And someone has have issues of headaches and things at the student health center, you know, so there would be records and things to look at. I always would just, as a point, to pursue that. If someone, you know, becomes a lawyer and can pursue up with a subpoena, the records from the public universities, even the high schools, you know, the kids coming in with headaches, usually there's a nurse on campus. I would do that. Um, and I think that's all, because you talked about the, the land, that one family, congratulations to them. Um, if they're going to prepare these, make sure it's prepared carefully so that after a certain amount of time, it doesn't revert back to the city or county, wherever they're leasing it to, things like that. Um, but that's all I have for now. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, our caller in Georgia. I'm so glad that uh, your mom didn't uh, curse or anything, just getting all worked up listening to that stuff again. Uh, I think that folks have said that as well. Like, uh, hey, I don't do that either. Go out proselytizing, trying to uh, talk about racism uh, with folks and such. Like she said, not on social media, trying to get a job. Other than that, not did even into all of that, trying to force people into talking about racism, which I completely support. People will, if they want to talk about the subject matter, they will bring it up ask a question or let you know that they are receptive uh, to hearing your commentary always makes things go better. Um, like the uh, report, the one on Victoria Chang, non-white female, so-called Asian, uh, a listener mailed me that report. Not that I wouldn't have played it anyway, but specifically this week, a listener mailed it to me. And I think she was saying just the, so many victims of racism, uh, regardless of what, the, how they are classified so many of us have had that similar feeling of, man, my parents did not prepare me for racism at all. They didn't give me any tips, tools, talking to white people, like nothing. Like I think a lot of us can relate to that, unfortunately. But yes, duly noted. Um, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943. Pound, press star six one if you would like to participate. Incidentally, the report Clifford Owensby, this is the paraplegic uh, black male in Ohio snatched out of the vehicle by enforcement officials. Uh, he said he felt like he was in roots. He said the film that like he was showed growing up to show about like slavery and racism, which is what we still have. Uh, but similarly, but 
Wow. There is a reason that I always say, Seattle, I don't ever say, I'm confident like you would have a hard time going through the Cal's archives to find a time for me saying, wow, Seattle is the greatest city ever. No. Best plantation, just like on roots. That's what white supremacy racism is. Maybe to what the caller was saying before, hey, if we keep that in mind, you get stopped by enforcement officers like, woof. Let that guide your thoughts, speech, and action. Hopefully I can get through this safely without loss of life or limb. Incidentally, I'll also say with that, I thought it was important. They said within that segment, they didn't read him his Miranda rights and, you know, treated him like they were barbarians and all that we got. But they said allegedly that they found $22,000 in the vehicle, maybe. That's going to be contested in court, they said, because – hey, there was no Miranda right, and I did not give them permission, consent, to search the vehicle. They have very specific laws about, hey, what kind of evidence is permissible when you go to do an arrest? Again, I'm not an expert in jurisprudence, but I know, like, in terms of when you go to court and say, oh, we found this in the vehicle, it can't just be that you found this, like, what pretense did you have to stop this person? There has to be a reasonable reason. And then even to search the vehicle, there has to be some reasonable suspicion, as they say. Now, normally this can be easy to co uh, concoct some reason for a black person, but there are a number of cases where even black people, the police did the same thing, snatched them out of the car, did all this other stuff, and searched and said they found this allegedly and all the rest of it. Hey, especially if you have recording, you didn't consent to the search. Doesn't matter what they found. That could be totally tossed out. And I mean, all the rest of it, like, did they find this? Wink, wink. If you can pull, snatch some paraplegic out of the vehicle, like, oh, yeah, I think you might be capable of a whole lot of things. O.J. Simpson. Uh, but just I always like to include that for in stops, enforcement, officer encounters, composure, super important, no fussing and all the rest. But if it comes to a search, Sir, ma'am, I know you're just doing your job. I do not consent to searches of my person, my property, my residence, and or my vehicle without a warrant. I know you're just doing your job, sir, officer. You're not saying it with an attitude because you don't have, like, godfather-type gangsters behind you who are going to, you know, smack somebody if they get out of line. That's not the case. You're still on the plantation, but there are rules to how the plantation is supposed to operate. So you're just reciting the rules as they are written. And I've used, I'm not telling you anything, same thing with offspring. This is something that I've used repeatedly over the years, successful every time. I've never had to cause a problem. I've said, yeah, be very cautious. Never, never consent to searches of your person who knows? Oh my gosh, we found $22,000. I'm unemployed. Where did you get $20,000 from? Let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, suggestions, questions to share, line should be open. May I be heard? <clears throat> yes, sir. Yes, good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers. Good evening, listeners. Um, 
I just wanted to share briefly. I, I have been subjected to the you um, you coming along with that um, black nonsense or some permutation of that. And um, I want to. I guess if I may add another question. Or okay, the question. Did you say you had a question or? Yes. Yes, I, I was wanted to add another question to anybody who um, who are attempting to, um, and I guess it, it'll be to you and anybody else who's attempting to transition to a plant-based diet. How do you deal with the cravings? I guess, like I said, maybe with me cooking more and using less salt, I find myself craving a lot of salt, and I mute my line. Is it, uh, just so that I can better understand, is it that you're craving salty foods um, that you used to eat that maybe you're not eating anymore or just like craving like salt? Like you feel like when you eat uh, whatever foods you're consuming, you feel like they don't have enough salt in them? I think it's more about the salty foods because like I said, I, I generally find a lot of cravings like potato chips, potato chips and things of that nature. You know, like I said, potato chips, Cheetos, all all of those, all of those um, items. I'm I get really bad with it sometimes. And I want to see how people have dealt with it. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um. So now, if we have any folks, if you have any tips on how you. Uh, transitioned, and if you had a problem with like snacking, that's what that sounds like. Because I used to love everybody loves potato chips and Cheetos and all that stuff. Um, if folks have any tips on kind of transitioning uh, away from that, and if you have really bad craving, because a lot of times they have all those chemicals and additives and everything, so that you don't just eat one; you eat, you know, the entire bag or five bags or whatever it is. Um, Let's see, in terms of the cravings, sometimes it it does take, that is a part of the transition. Uh, I remember having a lot of just oddball kind of cravings uh, for snacky foods, uh, M&M candy sometimes, M&Ms, um, cheeseburgers. I wasn't a big burger eater, but some of the same types of things. Um, you can get uh, if you like really miss the the crunchy kind of salty flavor, you can get like healthier like snack chips. Uh, well, depending on where you are, uh, they have. Let me think. They have uh, chickpea puffs. They are so good. Um, they have different flavors that they have heat now. I I do. I'm very aware that Costco has different um, stock depending on geographically where you are. At least here in Washington State, Costco has uh, these chickpea puffs. They're or they're called hippies. That's it, hippies. Uh, so they're like cheese puffs, but they're made from chickpeas. Taste great. I've seen children devour them. They're awesome. Um, they have, just depending on the type of grocery stores that you have in your area, if they have any place that has healthier items, they'll have a lot of like snack chips that are way healthier than just the standard potato chips or what have you, and they won't be salty. If you have an air fryer, you could make potato, you know, 
depends on how much cooking you want to do, if you have an air fryer, but I've done that. It is super easy, like slice the potatoes. Uh, it is helpful if you have a um, spiralizer, but I mean, whatever. You slice the potatoes, you soak them a little bit, and since you're making them, you can control the amount of salt, but you soak them in uh, like a salty water solution. Uh, you let them dry out. You put them in the uh, air fryer for, I don't remember the exact time, but it's not too long. But I mean, you, in fact, I think I made uh, sweet potato chips. Amazing, crunchy. You can control how much salt is on them. Uh, so that's another option. Um, trying to think for other. I just, they have so many. It's like if you go to any of those healthier stores, if they have any of those in your area, if they don't, you can even look online because everybody gets all kinds of stuff delivered at this point. Uh, but you can look online. Uh, I can even, uh, they have, they have, um, plant-based cheese crackers. They taste great. I love those. I don't eat those all the time, but I mean, they're great if you are missing that type of a product. Um, they just, they have so many of those that are so much better. Uh, a lot of them are, they have like a cauliflower uh, chip, cauliflower-based chip at one of the stores, like just all kinds of stuff. It's really crazy. Like, uh, But yeah, I'd say just kind of go check that out. I'm sure some of that will kind of satisfy some of the cravings. And even I'm of the opinion, like, as not as it's not an all-the-time thing, you can just get potato chips. Like, you can get organic potato chips, low salt. Uh, I read the ingredients to make sure they don't have MSG or anything like that. Just get potato chips. Just don't eat the entire bag. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't even get more than one bag. I wouldn't get the big family size bag. You have the one bag. Savor, enjoy. And, and you'll notice as you're transitioning, especially as you incorporate more plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables, and less of the processed foods, your taste buds will change. Uh, because that, that happened with me. That happens with everyone. Like I said at the beginning, uh, I've been doing um, low-sodium uh, soy sauce, and I don't add salt to my food. Uh, like in terms of once I sit down to eat, the salt would just be added somewhere during the cooking process, and then I generally do less than, you know, whatever the recipe or whatever calls for. But my taste buds changed so much as someone who used to eat all kinds of processed foods and lots of potato chips all the time and Cheetos and all the rest of that, and then fast food and hot dogs and just, well, death. Uh, but it's got so much salt in it. Even I think within the first six months or so that I stopped eating that food, I went back and I had like something goofy. Like I had like a French fry from McDonald's and, oh my God, it was overpowered. Like I couldn't even consume it. Like your taste buds will be that way about a lot of things. Like sugar, I used to eat um, dried mangoes but they would have added sugar. Once I switched, I would still eat dried mangoes, but I would just get them with no sugar added. Love them to death, can like scarf the whole bag down. I went back after about six months or so, maybe even more close to a year of having not had those sweetened ones. I couldn't even eat one. So your taste buds will change dramatically just if you kind of stick through and just even kind of appreciate, because it's such a dramatic, I tell people, like, we eat so much, like, non-food products. I was just looking at the book today. You can even check it out, uh, Diet 
for a small planet. It's uh, NPR's doing all the 50 year stuff, Shaft. <laughs> and this book, I didn't even know, is 50 years. I read it when I was in California and went plant based the first time. And I had, it has like recipes, tips on food, preparing food, nutritional information. Excellent book. 50 years on, and it's still recommended. Um, that book talks about reducing sodium and even like ways you can prepare food and reducing sodium. Uh, in your diet, but your taste buds will be, it'll be wrapped like just observing as you eat, consume regular foods, fruits, vegetables, not adding all that salt, those cravings will diminish. And yeah, like just give us, I guess, give us a report back maybe in two months or so as you kind of transition through, but mine would just be kind of check out if they have a healthier store, check out some of the offerings there have potato chips, I guess, every once in a while. If you're really, really missing them, just don't go bonkers. Don't get the biggest bag. And I would say even be kind of picky about that to try to get the quote-unquote healthier so that they don't have MSG and a lot of craziness. Like you can just get some regular organic potato chips with not a whole lot of chemicals and all the rest. Enjoy. And then back to eating healthier. So get some, get some potato. Like it's autumn. Get sweet potatoes. Like that is season to have sweet potatoes. You can do all kinds of stuff with sweet potatoes. Yam, squash, all that stuff is in season. Uh, did any of the listeners, any of the folks who um, are maybe trying to eat better, do better with their meals, cooking and all that, any tips if you have uh, folks who have cravings for like snacky foods, potato chips, salty items, Cheetos, all that stuff, any tips uh, for things that can be substituted to help get through those cravings? Check post an email as well until justice at gmail.com. Until justice at gmail.com. If you have or think of anything uh, that you would like to share on the eating uh, end of it, uh, so much I would say so much of it is uh, cooking because there's some even zucchini sticks that is a really easy one. Oh, I love zucchini sticks. Like you can batter those, and that's the same thing. You can control how much um, salt is on them. Oh, popcorn! Why not that? I love popcorn. That is right, snacky. Same thing. You can control how much salt, and that's super. I mean, they have all kinds of popcorn that you get at the store here. That's great, healthy popcorn. That you know, whatever, whatever. But I mean, you could just get like. Um, I was thinking you get a popcorn popper, which you totally could, but you could just use a pot, go old school. They do sell uh, corn kernels, popcorn kernels at the store, really inexpensive. I don't know if you're a popcorn fan or not, but I love popcorn. Uh, and you could even flavor it. Uh, they have all kinds of like herb spiced popcorn that is super easy to make, like super less than 30 minutes. Like fast, you would have it, snack, move forward. Um, I'm sure there are even some other ones that I could think of in terms of substitutes, but popcorn, zucchini sticks, all kinds of things. Uh, see, if you have a, a dehydrator, you could go bonkers uh, and make all kinds of stuff. But you don't need to invest in any uh, equipment. Or Air fryer, that would be one because you can use that for so many things in addition to making potato chips. But you don't need to invest in a whole lot of crazy equipment or what have you just 
simple things in the kitchen can produce great results. Air fryer is one small item that can be great, but yeah. Zucchini sticks, popcorn, you don't need any equipment for popcorn. Pan, lid on it, a little bit of oil, we are in business. Uh, let's see. Other folks, commentary to share, suggestions, observations, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Oh, I think our folks are getting their thoughts together. Nuts. That is another great one. That snacky uh, feeling. I would try to get raw nuts. Stay away from the ones that have all the chemicals added and honey nut this and, you know, that's nonsense. That's sugar and defeats the whole purpose. But if you can get, like, raw nuts, that'll give that, like, crunchiness. Uh, from chips and all the rest of it, and they are so good for you and super filling. You don't want to go overboard because uh, they can have a lot of fat content, but lots of nutrients, fiber, iron. I'm a huge fan of uh, nuts. Other folks with commentary to share. May I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, there was a report uh, I uh, I came across or I noticed earlier on in the week where I guess they were talking about um, so-called, I guess, what, hate crimes uh, not being reported. And there was a guy up in Jacksonville. Um, he said he was given a uh, a story that I guess a couple years ago he described four large men, I guess white men, that he labeled as the KKK, uh, and they described this person as uh, Native American. So he was born in Ocala. Uh, and he said they cornered him and, you know, they attempted to uh, strangle him, strangle him. Um, but he said that they spared him or something like that. And he was uh, cautious about going to law enforcement because he was suspicious of uh, white people. So I found that interesting that they put that in that report. Um and is in I was thinking about the audio segment. The uh I think that was a white person that was being questioned about a person, I think that was a, a black male that was screaming I can't breathe, I think, on the recording. Um now like when he asked that might have been like a journalist or something. Like he asked him, uh like you mean like are you telling me you didn't hear you didn't hear him scream I can't like I can't breathe and he said he wasn't speaking to me or, or something he said uh like I thought about the ambiguity the deception how 
they use words. Like, are you kidding me? You you can't even answer that question. Like, you know, um, and how racism is practiced in so many different ways, and many victims, uh, will at well even to this day, will think like I gotta hear some kind of a slur like monkey or, um, blue gum all kind of racist like epithets and words like that until like something is actually an act of racism you know so i, I wanted to uh, mention that and, and as well as the land and that, that brought me back to uh if you remember the two white women right it was like oh you know i know it say it says caucasian on the 1935 deeds and stuff like that, only a Caucasian can um, obtain this land. And she was trying to say, you know, I apologize and stuff. I was like, oh, I was already aware that this is on these documents. But they was looking for, like, uh, you know, different subdivisions and what the restrictions were. Uh, and from my understanding, even on some of the restrictions, it'll have that listed as well. So it's definitely uh, embedded within the records when it comes to land, racism, white supremacy. And um, the last thing I wanted to mention is the uh, the juvenile, um, like delinquency, like how it can be a child as young as 10, like I was talking to somebody and I had to look up a record because juvenile is confidential. So this person said at 10 years old, they were accused of something, you know, uh, accused of attacking someone, assaulting someone. And I looked in the file, it was just uh, like a police report and that was it. And it's just amazing how even with, even at that time, uh, a person can reach to their 30s and 40s and, they, you know, they can be questioned about that. They try to get a form of employment or they try to, you know, do something in their lives. So uh, it can definitely follow you. And I would recommend, like, in terms of the salt, like I've uh, used the Mrs. Dash is like no salt in that, uh, in the meals. I was thinking about that. And I also want to bring up, you know, drinking water. It helps me to become full and I don't want to consume or I, it'll prevent me from consuming a larger portion of food, you know, uh, drinking it in the morning and it'll help me throughout the day. So. I can just recommend those two right now. And that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Drink more water. Love it. Love it. Gallon and a half. Uh, they say about uh, half of your body weight in ounces. But all of us drink more water. Um, and the flavor or just seasoning in general, I think, 
is huge um, because I think so many times the processed foods, it's not, it doesn't really have any flavor. They'll just, you know, it's cheap, fast made food frequently. So it'll just be salt and sugar and fat. Uh, actual seasoning, flavoring can make a huge difference sometimes where you don't need, you know, tons uh, of salt uh, on your food. So absolutely figure out, especially if you can get fresh herbs, like, ooh, even for basic things, like uh, I suspect tomorrow after the Global Sunday talk on racism, uh, I'm going to have a sandwich, plant-based, and I'm going to have fresh basil. Makes such a difference, like no salt, <laughs> and I could not imagine. And I, I feel like I remember having like sandwiches when I did eat, you know, was a carnivore. And I do think I would get a sandwich and they would sprinkle like salt and pepper. I love, you know, fresh cracked pepper, fresh ground pepper, like love it. I've had a pepper grinder uh, at my residence for years now, uh, but like salt for like, just like I said, on the table or something like, no. Oversalted diet, oversodium diet, uh, deliberately so that we have, you know, lots of unnecessary health problems from eating lots of bad food that is all totally, totally. Un if we had some of that land back that was stolen from us, it'd be growing cucumbers, zucchini. We'd all just be eating zucchini, fried zucchini sticks every day. You could even put those in the dehydrator. Um, but the, the report, he said the non-white male who said it was four large, like, KKK members who strangled him, and he said he was afraid of going to enforcement officers. I was thinking, man, they could have been enforcement officers or connected. Maybe they got relatives. Like, I don't blame him. Widespread, I think, uh, distrust of enforcement officers. Uh, let's see. The rip, speaking of distrust for enforcement officials and the these were not uh, enforcement officers like police. These were security guards uh, who are now being charged for the death of Mackenzie Cochran, uh, black male privilege. I'm sure everybody knew about Mackenzie Cochran. Got buttons and t-shirts with his name on it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so he was killed in 2014. And they're just now being charged seven years later. They say justice is slow sometimes. Uh, but he got, was being questioned. He said, you didn't hear Mackenzie Cochran saying he can't breathe? Well, you wasn't talking to me. <laughs> That's a nutsy. The question was, did you hear him say he can't breathe? Not did was he talking to you or who did you think he was addressing the fact that he couldn't breathe? Did you hear him say, I can't breathe? Ooh, that's a tough one. I, I, I don't think, uh, no, I don't think I heard it. And then they play the audio of him yelling out, gasping before dying. I even thought it was kind of tacky that they said this was George Floyd. And I said, nah, I thought that was Eric Garner. I mean, there's so many, you know, black people that can't breathe. I mean, pick one. Uh, let's see. 
Oh, and the records, I thought that was important, too, because there's so many illustrations of that. We talked about that. We had those white women uh, on the program uh, that Wednesday. Uh, and we even got Lancaster on Monday. That was the correct day. Uh, we were talking about that where they go through and steal property from black people, and then they're able to lie about it, where sometimes it can be difficult to even track that this happened because they you know, smudged this or totally removed that and taken this out deliberate racism, white supremacy. Uh, and again, generally, it's not like black people have these jobs. Like I'm sure, uh, I forgot the fo- uh, person's name, but he has a plaque down at the courthouse in Florida. Uh, he worked there for a number of decades and, you know, all that. But I'm sure if we go back, you know, not that far, it would be all white people, all white people who are working at the courthouse in charge of the archives and where the deeds are and all that for property wouldn't have to go back that far. Unjust networking and nepotism, all that good stuff, who's going to have access? They, matter of fact, you could probably wouldn't have to go back that far to where, forget a panic button, they wouldn't even allow a nigger into the courthouse. Might be dicey to even go in there and request a record. Lots of ways that white terrorism is protected. Incidentally, we heard that report on John uh, Vaughn, black male, football player, University of Michigan, victim of sexual terrorism from a white doctor, Dr. Robert E. Anderson. University of Michigan helped cover this up for decades. They won't, The president won't even come out and acknowledge him. the tackiness, unbounded. And beyond all of that, like we had the reports about sexism and misogyny, again, as though the only people who are targeted on the basis of gender are females. John Vaughn, male victim of sexual abuse, and I think they said most of the victims in this case are males. Wouldn't be any better either way, but I mean, just we don't talk about that a lot. And John Vaughn, a football player, no less. Same thing I think folks might say with Terry Crews. Like, it wouldn't be possible. This, you know, big, hulking black male, you know, can walk around. What the fellow say at the courthouse? Like, you wouldn't say that to me if I was a tall black man. Tall black males, we do the same thing to them we do to everybody else. Like, whatever. Negra is a negra. But I thought that was important. Uh, they won't even acknowledge it. At the big house, no less. We were just talking about that a couple weeks ago, the University of Michigan, the big house. He helped fill the big house. And to be terrorized, the university covers it up, and now you all won't even acknowledge me? Man not. System of white supremacy racism. Uh, The number again, 720-716-7300. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Can I be heard? Our caller in California. Yes, sir. Greetings again. Um, the um, judge who was sending all the black children to greater confinement, and um, what, the one who came back 
the victim who came back and attempted to commit um, suicide um, three times. It reminded me of um, uh, a, a Neely Fuller clip again, where he talks about how um, a lot of black people are suicidal because of the system of white supremacy. And also that um, reminded me of Khalif Broder. Uh, forgive me if I pronounce this, if I said his name wrong, but I do believe he was a, a black male victim who was um, incorrectly sent to greater confinement and committed suicide due to the um, trauma and the whole incorrect experience. And um, with um, the Flint and how the, the black male said that um, we could have lost an entire um, generation to um, the lead poisoning. And um, I, I would say, uh, yeah, I, I'm certain uh, we have lost an entire generation to um, that, that um, chemical um, warfare um, that is the Flint, Michigan um, disaster, terrorist attack. And um, I, I would say we're also losing uh, entire, um, like, massive amounts of um, non-white children to um, just being um, super, super confused. Um, I'm seeing um, young people um, of all non-white racial classifications who um, have no problem being um, called um, nigga. Um, and it's just, it just goes with, the, um, with being non-white these days. Um, I remember it was a word that confused victim used for um, pride. Now it's just um, uh, a slur, like um, it kind of has always been. Um, but um, I think it's all I have for now. And I'm my line. Confusion is lethal. And... Uh... Yeah, not understanding racism, white supremacy, lack of black self-respect. Yeah, can allow a lot of that. Especially, I think, with younger folks, like, yeah, just being confused and having so many white people that come out and pretend that they, I'm with Colin Kaepernick. That's right, man. Black Lives Matter. It can be very, very confusing. They're out with you protesting one moment, then they're calling you nigga the next, like. Confuse, talk to your children. That was the segment, I think. Forgive the metaphor. That was, or I don't even need a metaphor. That was the reason the victim shared that segment about Victoria Chang. Uh, it was her saying, like, man, I wished my parents had better prepared me for white supremacy racism. I wish they had talked to me about it. Even, she said it even more explicitly. I wish they had taught me how to converse with individuals classified as white. Part of that would include do not ever allow them to call you. I won't say allow, but immediately inform them. It is not acceptable to call me by anything other than my name. Not nicknames, not nigger, anything else you can think of, not acceptable. And no sex with a white person, include that as well. But talk to your children about racism. That would help with the Tennessee situation as well. At least they can better, you know, understand what's happening uh, with all of this, where the children were being arrested and all that. Um, incidentally, 
the terrorism with the water. Now, that data also happened in Flint, Michigan, and Newark, New Jersey. Those are just places that we know about. I'm sure a number of other regions as well. That's part of the uh, infrastructure package that is having all that difficult time. The report we heard was about Benton Harbor, which is also in Michigan, not Flint, Michigan, totally different area, which also happens to have a significant population of black people who are suffering with this problem and may have a so-called lost generation uh, of children uh, as a result of chemical biological warfare. But yeah, two different regions just so happens that they, but or Newark, New Jersey as well, just so happens that at least those three regions, all substantial populations of black people. Bad water, <laughs> said drink more water, <laughs> drink more water, provided that it's not been poisoned, provided that you can get healthy access to drinkable water that will not kill you. Drink more water. Uh, any other comments folks want to make sure they get it before we wrap things up? Oh, let's see, Mr. Blue in New York should be with us as well. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to the callers and the listeners. Um, can you hear me clearly, Gus? Crystal. Excellent, excellent. Just trying out a new way to uh, communicate. Um, one of one of the most interesting um, things in the tonight's um, compensatory calling was uh, the cases about the um, the Boy Scouts and um, like over eighty thousand cases reported of um, pedophilia and and um, sexual abuse towards young boys. And the thing I find interesting about it is because I'm an art major and also art history has also been something that I've had to study um, in junior high school, high school, and even in college. And the one thing that I think that we as non-white people don't understand um, very clearly is that there is a history of so-called or what is called pederasty within the ancient Greek and Roman culture. Now, because and I see a correlation because a lot of words that we use have a, lot, a Latin base and a Latin etymology, and um, we base a lot of architecture or Europeans base a lot of architecture in the so-called Western world or America based on Greek and Roman architecture. Um, the names of the constellations are based on Greek and Roman mythology. So there's a lot of reference to Greek and Roman culture in so-called American Western culture, so-called. And one of the huge things that went past all of us that we really didn't understand when they were teaching it to us in school that I really started to investigate and even ask some of my professors was, what is this concept and why are we looking at sculptures and um, paintings that depict um, men and boys? And no white professor ever wanted to get deep into the concept and idea of pederasty. But as I started to do my own research, I found out that this was a common practice in Greek and Roman culture. And I just considered that from Jerry Sandusky to Dr. Anderson um, to all of the sexual abuse that happens within gymnasiums, because even gymnasium, the etymology of that word is gymnos, a Greek, Greek word called gymnos, which means um, naked. And um, it was common practice 
that particularly in Greek culture, that they went to the gymnasium to exercise, particularly wrestle in the nude. And so there's a lot of things that we really don't understand about European culture that's reflected in the culture today that just seems to be what white culture is all about. And as that person always says, white people do not care about children is reflected. We're going, we're talking about thousands of years back, thousands of years back. So this for them, in my view, in my conclusion, is really nothing different. It's nothing new. It's just that now they have to hide it because they have so many other ethnicities around that might not um, condone that type of practice. And so when I heard the report about the 82,000, and that had been, I mean, another report that you had done like several months ago about the Boy Scouts and their billion-dollar lawsuit with over 80,000 cases, um, reported cases of, you know, child abuse, um, Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, like all of this seems to be pretty much um, historically what their culture does. And um, and I just wanted to say, you know, it's a, it's a shame that we're still dealing with um, after like $1.9 trillion, the new president decided to, you know, take out or delegate $1.9 trillion to uh, get people mass vaccinated and the whole vaccine, the American vaccination program that they still haven't solved the Flint, Michigan water issue. And that, um, you know, people, non-white black people, non-white people are still being poisoned in that area of the world. We've had many of our issues here in the Bronx with, um, with uh, building parks over sewage plants and, um, you know, lead paint, lead paint poisoning from peeling walls in, you know, in um, tenement buildings and things like that. So in the Bronx, since I was a kid, I remember um, all of these reports of children dying from lead poisoning, paint chips. So it seems to be a continued problem, but it's an interesting narrative that you get in mainstream media about wanting to protect the average citizen. And that's why we need these vaccinations and all these things like that. So you know, I'm always thinking about stuff, always learning, and uh, appreciate the show because it is constructive. It gets me to think, and um, and um, for these reports, things that I may not have heard during the week or that come onto my news feed, um, appreciate it. Thank you all. Um, everybody have a good night, and um, stay safe. Thank you, guys. I'm my line. Much obliged, Mr. Blue. Kaya, hope everybody is safe, eating well, drinking water. Uh, we spoke about the law, matter of fact, Dr. Nell Urban Painter, who teaches art history amongst other topics. Brilliant. Oh, that's a cowbell. Oh, so tough. <laughs> Dr. Nell Urban Painter, anyway. But uh, we talked about that when she was on the program in 2010. But specifically, we talked about those statues of white boys and the sexual uh, attraction uh, fetish that was rampant throughout Greco-Roman culture. We talked about all of that in detail with Dr. Nell Irvin Painter. I made a sound clip of that segment. I've played it, I played it frequently throughout the uh, Woody Allen book study, uh, but we read all of that importantly it's in her book, The History of White People. Doesn't have many highlights. That is a big one. 
the Boy Scouts, Dr. Robert E. Anderson, Jeffrey Epstein, accusations around Woody Allen, who mixed all those films with child rape, 42-year-old with a 17-year-old. You tell me what that's called. And then he talks about repeatedly about the influence of Oedipus Rex, which they require to be read in school. Right out of, you know, Greek mythology and all of that and the child having sex with their parent, with his son having sex with the mom. Which is Shannon O'Connor. We talked about bringing the children over to have sex and liquor and probably drugs and watch and record and all the rest of it. Like what? In the middle of the pandemic. We will be here tomorrow, Sunday, Global Talk on Racism, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll look forward to Chet's Black History Month in the UK. So we'll see what they're doing other than disparaging the name of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. And we'll talk about that stabbing uh, amongst other items. Uh, again, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific tomorrow. Listener-supported counter-racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Links are there for Venmo, PayPal, Cash App. Cash App address address is cash.app forward slash dollar sign. The cows. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested, kept us on the air. Uh, you can also visit the Amazon wish list listed under Gus T. Renegade. Again, huge thanks to all the folks who have supported for 12 plus years. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy for many reasons. In addition to being sober, if you're going to go out, uh, the shooting that happened in Stockton, California, Bobby Gale, he said it was a white man was speeding down the street, going the wrong way, speeding down the street, almost hit them. And he said, hey, slow down. The white man, Michael Hayes is his name, 31 years old, that he did get arrested, hops out of the car, calls him a nigger, and shoots him seven times. He could have died been killed. That's what I mean about just being very mindful. When you go out and about, be alert. I would even be careful, like I said, about verbal confrontations. Now, I can't even say that's a verbal confrontation. Somebody almost runs you over in their vehicle. You just slow down. You're going the wrong way. Like, whoa. And that nigger, you could die. Or he, exactly as his brother said, he intended to kill Bobby Gale. Be mindful of that when you go out and about, maybe even, hey, no unnecessary travel. If someone is being rowdy and hostile, that sort of thing, white man is speeding, drag racing down the wrong side of the road. Let's all get out of here. Call the police, hunker down. It is time to go. Very dangerous times on the plantation. If you're driving, you're sober, 
you're buckled, you are not on the cell phone, we need to be paying attention, and we are doing the small things to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping. Very integral to solving the problem. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.